You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about the European referendum, so you don't have to. Tentatively, Simon. You're what? Tempted to leave. Tentative. I thought you said you were tempted to leave. Tentative and half tempted to leave. I'm Brexited. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. We've got an email. Obviously, I'm not tempted to leave. Who are you? Pardon? Who are you? Oh, I'm JR. Did I not say that? No, no. Yeah, at the risk of turning turning this into Southall Wing Weekly... David Kitchen says, Dear Blue Box team, I've seen on social media that many UK-based Doctor Who podcasters are a little upset about the Brexit result. (laughs) I think he might be understating the case somewhat there. Firstly, let me reassure you that there is a world outside of Europe and your old friends in Australia, America, Canada and New Zealand look forward to spending more time with you. But, he says, to bring this back to Doctor Who, I'm shocked that any Doctor Who fan wasn't expecting this. After all, in the 1994 Virgin New Adventure Legacy by Gary Russell, Peladon chooses to leave the Galactic Federation. As such, the allegory has come full circle. Ah. Regards, David in Melbourne. This is JR, just very quickly breaking in while Simon deals with his kids to tell you that the short conversation we were intending to have at the start of the podcast actually ended up lasting about an hour. So if you'd like to avoid that conversation and just go straight for the Doctor Who content, it starts at approximately an hour in. Uh, Meanwhile, I ought to mention that the theme we're using this week, going back to the theme we used on episode 200, is from Chris Lovder. But that, I've got a copy of Legacy sat upstairs, not not read yet. How have you? Mm. Me too. Although, to be honest, it's not upstairs here at your house, it's downstairs at my house. Do you not live here? No, I don't live here. That's sort of breaking a little illusion. I thought you were together. Are you not a couple? I'll tell you another <laughs> illusion that's broken. It's that is I see more of you than I do Lee these days. Who's Lee? Who? Exactly. <laughs> oh. Matt. Is the new Lee. Oh, please. Oh, come on. You know you are. You're just here for the comedy value. And anybody listening knows that full well. <clears throat> so we're deep into the, the, the EU referendum now. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how closely our, our listeners will be following this. And I'm guessing that some of them have been following it rather more closely than we have. Mm. But by the same token, I'm guessing some of them haven't been following it very closely at all. So let's go back to the start and let's try and work out exactly what's happened here. Right, we're in the car on the way over. Matt and I mentioned the Beast Below and the 2010 election Mm -hmm. in which 
the Conservatives had to form a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. Mm. Now, when it comes to the 2015 election, you've got UKIP gaining in popularity due to the, uh, well, let's say the the immigration policies of UKIP, which obviously are finding a bit of traction in the United Kingdom at the moment. So, David Cameron is worrying at this point that not only will he not be able to get back in with the coalition government, but the Conservatives won't get back in at all in 2015. Mm. So David Cameron promises to put the referendum into the manifesto under the misguided illusion (laughs) that... It's a done deal. Well, no, under the misguided misillusion Mm. that if the Tories get enough MPs in in 2015, they'll probably have to form another coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. And because the Liberal Democrats are so anti-leaving the EU, the manifesto won't have to stand and the referendum will be taken off the agenda. Mm. So in other words, he is literally just putting the referendum in the manifesto in order to tempt back any Tory voters who may have been tempted away to voting for UKIP. You, you've got to do more than nod, Matt, because, you know, I'm not oh, really... I'm agreeing with you. Oh, OK, yeah. Oh, well, I'm waiting to get to the, you know... The meaty stuff. What's actually happened. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it's quite a story to get there. You can, but you can go all the way back to 9-11, Blair, Iraq. I mean, the whole thing is... Well, important it's a long and complicated where, story where to get here. come from. Because this, UKIP has shaped. Well, I'm talking. I'm trying to. Come, come yeah, I'm trying to talk. I'm trying to keep it to the referendum as much as possible. Yeah. Well, until we get to what happened after the referendum, I suppose. But we'll get into that. So, this is a very strange podcast for the people who are listening for the Doctor Who content. And if I remember, I will put somewhere on Facebook where the Doctor Who stuff starts. <laughs> <laughs> so. Cameron is offering up this referendum, never expecting to have to use it. Mm-hmm. And doesn't put safeguards in that says well, there are they, reasons. They, they need 60% to make a change or 70% or each, there are reasons. each country in the union has to agree to the... So there are, well, there are reasons why he doesn't put any safeguards in. Right. And the reasons are for the same reason as he held the referendum so quickly. Mm. I mean, it's been a year since the election and we've had the referendum already. Mm. He's expecting the sooner you do the referendum, the least likely people will be to come out and vote. Right. Mm. And he's also expecting, he's expecting that on the day of voting, remain voters will outnumber leave voters. Mm. But he's also thinking to himself, Remain voters are also going to believe this, that Remain voters will outnumber Leave voters. And a lot of Remain voters might think to themselves, well, if it needs to get up to 60%, it's not likely to get there, so I won't bother voting. The risk, therefore, is that if the Remain voters stay at home and don't bother voting, the Leave voters get their 60%. Right. So Cameron doesn't bother to put those safeguards in, thinking... Remain is going to get 60% anyway, or at the very least win it, Mm. by bringing all those extra Remain voters out, and it goes the other way. So Cameron has gambled on this thing. 
in a number of different ways. First of all, by putting it in the manifesto when he was never expecting that manifesto to see the light of day. Secondly, by taking out all the safeguards. You know, anything that may have tempted Remain voters to think, I don't need to bother, such as adding 16 and 17-year-olds into the vote. House of Lords voted to have 16 and 17-year-olds added to the referendum. I believe the Scottish referendum had 16 and 17-year-olds, or am I wrong? There was I a I didn't There was that. a referendum recently in the United Kingdom where 16 and 17-year-olds were added onto the vote. Right. Mm. Mm. right. <clears throat> but uh, David Cameron and the Conservatives voted that down. I suppose there was a lot of confidence, and then Boris Johnson defected to the leave. Well, yeah. Michael Gove well, defected to the leave. Let's get and into actually, these things actually, one John, by one. John, Johnson... <laughs> Was really popular at the time. You're jumping way ahead, Matt. No, no, no. I think that's. I think that's the start. That's when they. That's when they joined the campaign. That's the next. That's the next. Yes, but I want to talk that is... as a thing rather than right. just glossing over it as. Okay. So, yes, you get to the day and it's fifty-one point nine. Oh no, no, no. Boris Johnson was before that. So yes, I'm, but I'm talking but, about the, the. Yes, but I want to get Cam- into Cameron's. The... Cameron's convinced that it's going to pass easily. But the start of the start of the failure is Boris the Johnson. Swing is Boris Johnson. Yeah, That's okay. I wanted to talk about Boris Johnson as a okay. thing. Okay. So I've got as far as good. I'm to, at the moment <laughs> I'm on David Cameron's timeline. Right. Okay. okay. So we've got to David Cameron's timeline, you get to the vote, it goes absolutely against him, and he resigns. Yeah. Instantly. Mm. He resigns at the absolute earliest opportunity, pretty much. I mean, he'd resigned by something like quarter past eight in the morning or something, hadn't he? Mm. Or was it quarter mm. past nine? Well, strictly speaking, he hasn't resigned. No, okay, he, he's he ten committed, to, committed his... to resign yeah. by, yeah. October, and he's By October. <clears throat> well, the one thing that's notable about that is it may have seemed like the earliest available opportunity, but there's no way that Cameron wasn't awake at 4am in the morning when mm. it became, you know, by which time it was absolutely clear that Leave was going to win. Yeah. So Cameron has got four or five hours to plot his next move and to think about everything else that's been going on and to decide, you know, how his next move is going to affect what he wants to happen. So this is where we bring Boris Johnson in. Right. Boris Johnson is... A Remainer. He wants to stay in the EU. But, as it trans... Well, we're recording this on Thursday night. Hopefully you're listening to this <laughs> only a couple of days afterwards. So, you know, this is topical as of Thursday. As of Thursday, yesterday, it was revealed that Rupert Murdoch told Boris Johnson that Boris Johnson would have the weight of Rupert Murdoch's press behind him mm. if... He switched allegiances to leave. Because Murdoch is obviously uh, well behind leave mm-hmm. with all of his publications. And he knows that given the figureheads that leave had at the time, Farage is only going to bring in so much of the vote. Mm. He needed somebody else. Yeah. And this is where you were going, Matt. Yes. He needed somebody who, who A, was gullible enough to do it, I guess. Well, I'm well, gullible, but well, it was, okay. a, it was a clear path to becoming prime minister. Well, it was, but it wasn't. Yes, but that's yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. When I say gullible, I mean somebody who was prepared to take an almighty risk. Yes. Because whatever way you look at it, it's a risk. Yeah. 
Because yeah. this could have been the making, and it looks like it might have well, been the breaking. In a sense, Boris Johnson didn't have that much of a risk because his political career needed some a sort boost. of some <clears throat> sort of jump start, and he couldn't compete with Cameron on Cameron's own ground because Cameron was the guy that won the election. Well, this so is, he needed to. This is Boris Johnson's gamble. Yeah, yeah, he could have stayed a Remainer, mm. and knowing that whichever way the referendum fell, if it was tight, Cameron was going to be in trouble. Yeah. May not have been in so much trouble that he went, mm. but the chances are he would. And Boris has the personality to come in afterwards and have at least some support within the party. Yeah. But Boris's gamble is. By moving across to leave, not only does he have the assurances of Rupert Murdoch that he's going to have that press behind him mm. to get see him into Downing Street, but at the same time, Boris, being a Remainer, is also assuming that Remainer is going to win. And what he's gambling on is that the Leave voters are going to be so pissed off at having lost 55, 45 or whatever, that he's going to get their votes. He's going to get their support in his gamble to become prime minister. And the, the weird thing about Boris Johnson is he wouldn't. I can't. I can't see him becoming a cabinet minister. So he can't work his way up slowly because he's tried that and he's toxic. Because mm. he's nobody will. Well, he's just seen this he's with just Michael Gove. Mm. and he gets kicked <laughs> out. So either Boris Johnson is nothing, or he's prime minister. He can be prime minister, but he can't do the things in between. But he can't do the things in between. So this was his only way of instantly getting from this yeah, his M- MP to PM yeah, exactly. without, it, the, without yeah. the cabinet in between. Yeah, it's either he gets he gets shunted in yeah. on the back of something else happening or he's, or he's outside the bubble. Of course, we can't write him off completely because we don't know what's going to happen in the next 20 years and Boris Johnson's probably got 20 years left. We'll get a chat show. Yeah, I think that's that's more likely. I don't think he can come back politically. Well, it certainly doesn't look like it from, at this point. But I wouldn't. But yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't. No. I wouldn't like to write anybody or anything off yeah. at this point. Yeah. So you've got Boris Johnson now joins Farage on the Leave campaign. <laughs> oh my God! And this is so. David Cameron's decision, and do you know what really tips me off about this is the way he spoke to Jeremy Corbyn yesterday. Hmm. We'll get into Labour in a minute because that's another kettle of fish to open. I think Cameron resigns so early on Friday morning because he... Well, okay, not resigns, but puts forward the fact that he's going to resign because he appreciates, on the one hand, that whatever happens now, his career's not going to be for very much longer. He could have held on to prime ministership and he could have put Article 50 through. And further down the line, he could have quietly resigned and let somebody else take over. And maybe he'd have just about got away with all that. Except, of course, it's got to go through Parliament first. And we'll talk about that in a minute, probably. But he looks at the situation and he thinks to himself, if he stays there in the Prime Minister's chair, then that is going to give Boris Johnson the wherewithal to step forward and depose him. Possibly. Yeah. That's one scenario. But what all those scenarios need to happen is somebody needs to step up and invoke Article 50 in order for the vote that the public have made, which of course, as we know, is an advisory vote, not a legally binding vote. Somebody needs to step forward and do it in order to make it happen. 
Cameron knows that it's on his shoulders to do that, but also he's a Remainer, he doesn't want to go, and he also knows that it's going to take a very brave person to either step up and actually do it, or else step up and not. Mm. So by resigning first thing on Friday morning, Mm. he's issued a challenge to Boris Johnson. He said to Boris Johnson, either step up and go with the courage of your convictions Mm. and say, no, we don't want to invoke Article 50 because Mm. leaving the EU is a bad idea. Or else have the courage of your campaign and step up and invoke Article 50. And I think he gambles on Boris Johnson not being brave enough to do it. Now, of course, this has been superseded by something else. I think I think there are elements there are elements of that, but also I don't think it's quite as I don't think it's a complete. Oh, no, I'm simplifying. I think, I think also also think what you like about David Cameron. One of his main things would be to try and keep the keep the markets under control and keep everything tight lidded, and also by resigning without invoking Article Fifty, yeah. mm. he's actually delayed that decision for a few months just to let things settle. And you saw it as well with George Osborne g- giving his speech at seven o'clock in the morning on Monday morning. This is all designed to kind of try and try, and actually, try and actually settle things but down. But Cameron didn't need to resign in order not to invoke Article 50 straight away. It I, still has to go through Parliament. I, it does, but I don't think that, you know, I don't I, think actually, that was the national the way, view. Well, the way things have... Well, yeah, but it would still have had to. So he couldn't have invoked Article 50 straight away either way. But what he's done, the act of resigning or pre-resigning, the one thing that that's absolutely done is put the onus on somebody else's shoulders. Mm. Yeah. 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 And as far as Boris Johnson's concerned, that's put him in a catch-22 situation. But that's obviously been superseded by what happened with Gove this morning as we speak. But before we get there, you've got what happens with Labour as well. And I think if Cameron had known what was going to happen with Labour, that made have, might have made him think twice. Because the thing is, by resigning first thing on Friday morning, what Cameron's trying to do as well, one of the other things he's trying to do, is avoid the shitstorm that's going to follow him across Parliament. Only the shitstorm's turned in on itself and started to eat itself. And the Conservatives are pretty much getting away with things scot-free at the moment. Mm, mm. Because Labour are not putting up any kind of effective opposition. So Michael Gove, obviously he's about the only person on the Leave campaign who has any kind of mandate to be able to make promises and have some kind of responsibility for making good on those promises. What's the most famous quote from him from the campaign? Don't listen to the experts. Yeah, you shouldn't rely on experts. But I've I've heard <coughs> recently that actually that's complete the complete opposite of what Michael Gove is like. So, oh yeah, of, of everybody, of anybody in government, Michael Gove is the most likely to follow experts. He's almost a sort of... But you're kind of missing the point. The reason he says that is so that the man in the street who's thinking, I don't want to vote on this because I don't know, that quote Mm. gives them the wherewithal to go out and vote for something stupid. Yeah, he's spun it. Exactly. But actually, when he gets gets into power, that's not going to be a reflection of what happens. Well, if he gets into power. Well, he's going to get into some sort of power. Oh, Bridget, yeah, yeah. Be... but he's already in some sort of power, isn't he? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Michael Gove, the man who took the 
education system out to dinner and didn't tell the education system that that was actually what was on the menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, this morning is the... Uh, Simon's losing the will to live already. No, no. It's, it's sad. Yeah. The whole of the last few days has been very sad, but yeah. absolutely fascinating. I don't know, but Matt and I were talking in the car on the way here. We're possibly living through the most interesting period of British politics since, you know, shortly after World War Two, mm. with the amount of stuff that's going on. It's it's the most interesting and the most depressing. Yeah. Because, well, so the vote takes... Let's talk about what happened after the vote. The vote well, let's do Michael Gove and oh, okay. uh, Boris Johnson, and then we get into the vote and Labour and the lies and stuff, because it's, we're only scratching the tip of the iceberg at the moment so this morning Boris Johnson should have put his name forward as a candidate for Prime Minister and just before he's about to Michael Gove comes out and says you put your name up for it I'm putting my name up against you and the thing is that splits the leave vote in the Tory party amongst the membership doesn't it Mm -hmm. and the leave vote's already split in the Tory party membership because who's the other candidate who's on there who was a leaver there's another one I can't remember. Um, Liam not Fox, Andrea, is it? Andrea, no. It was, um, is it Andrew? Not Angela. Andrea? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes, I know who you mean. Yeah. So the leave vote is the less so, famous yeah. one. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, about to be more famous, possibly. It's quite forgettable, isn't she? That's, that's, anyway, yes. Well, she may not be for the next oh, few weeks. Opinions, but yeah. We'll find out. Mm. Anyway, she's not going to stand much of a chance against Johnson. She's certainly not going to stand a chance against Johnson and Gove if they're all in the same election. Mm. And the thing is, if she's not going to stand much of a chance against Johnson, that gives Johnson a free run. But if Gove steps in, then that vote's split three ways. And, of course, the vote's already split two ways, with the Conservatives are going to vote for somebody who is a Remain candidate. Mm. So Gove stepping in derails Johnson's campaign to become Prime Minister before it even starts, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Johnson falls on his sword, and if that's what... He's stabbed in the back, then falls on his sword. Well, he wasn't even stabbed in the back. He stabbed himself in the front, first mm-hmm. of all. Stabbed mm-hmm. in the right. front. I saw it today. Somebody said, stamped at the st- <laughs> stabbed in the front, stabbed in the back, and finally falls on his sword. It's like <laughs> something out of Hamlet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, not my quote, so I can't take no, uh, no. I can't take uh, credit for that. <coughs> okay, that's the Conservative Party, right. and as things currently stand, you've basically, unless one of the others surges forward over the next few weeks, you've basically got May versus Gove, right? Mm. Yes, that's so. Gove, obviously, is pro-Leave. He's the only pro-Leave candidate who really believed in it, maybe, yeah. apart from Farage. But he's not hes not a Prime Minister-in-waiting. He's not. He hasn't, he hasn't served in any of the big three cabinet positions. Theresa so May, on the other hand, yeah. almost looks like a shoe-in at this point. She yeah. does. Yeah, she does. Theresa May yesterday, I don't know what the quote is exactly, I don't know whether the quote was attributed to her correctly. I read yesterday, in more than one place, that Theresa May is threatening to pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights. <clears throat> now, as Matt said, this is... <laughs> well, that's not, as, I it's not as scary as it sounds, personally, okay. because 
we're not going to abandon human rights in the country if we pull out of the European Convention. Presumably, we'll just set up our own British <coughs> Convention of Human Rights, right. which would be very similar. Is this I'm more of a security uh, issue than a... No, no I'll tell you what this issue is, this is and I'm going to bring this up. The vote. Now, I'm going to bring this up again when we talk about Jeremy Corbyn. Okay. It's not what she said, it's why she said it. She said, we're going to pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights. And an awful lot of people are going to look at that statement and have the same reaction as you did, Simon. Mm. But, you know, Matt's reaction is obviously the more thought through one. We're just going to replace it with something else instead. Mm. So the European Convention on Human Rights by itself isn't the issue. The fact that she has made a statement Mm. on the European Convention on Human Rights before the nomination procedure for candidates for the Prime Minister is even over, is the issue. Why has she brought this up there's, now? There's only so, there's, so there's only so many things they can promise at the moment, because even the leader... No, I don't the, think it's about the, what she's promising. No, the I leader, think it's about the effect that has on the other people around her. So people started lobbying, lobbying for potential, potential Prime Ministers and for the other Prime Ministers before the vote, almost before the vote was taken. So mm. people from the country were starting to try and get promises from, from Gove and from Theresa May and whoever's going to be prime minister. They've, they're trying to make sure that when they step into the office, mm. they've got things they've promised. Assurances about and, certain And some things. of those things basically mean that we're not going to leave the single market. We can't leave the single market because some of the things that are in course at the moment in the country in certain areas... Rely on And I know know, the little bit I know is about higher education because I work for a university. Mm. And I know that there are bits of higher education that rely on the single market and the single market relies on the free movement of people Mm. around. Mm. So the two main things that the Leave campaign were trying to get out of, we can't get out of it because... The Leave campaign and any potential new prime minister has already agreed that these things aren't going to change. Okay, so there's very unless, little. They, there's very little they can promise. Well, unless the, the, the one caveat to that is unless they vote to change those things, or, or Which, unless there's somehow they can stay in the single market and get rid of the free movement of people, which isn't. On the cards, it's, it's, no. it's not possible. Yeah. Right, but the reason she brings up particularly European Convention on Human Rights might also be for the same reason that David Cameron, even though there's three million signatures on a petition, has said no second referendum is on the cards. Mm. He doesn't actually mean no second referendum is on the cards. He's issuing a challenge for people to stop a second referendum from happening or for people to actually force the second referendum through. Theresa May, I mean, this is just my estimation of why she's brought up something that is as potentially shocking as the European Convention on Human Rights. She's brought it up for the shock value. She's issued a challenge to the other candidates, and she's issued a challenge to the party and to the membership over things like, a second referendum, a vote in Parliament. What she's basically saying is, here's a shock. And shocks like this, further down the line, are going to become commonplace if we do pull out as various dominoes topple over one by one. And whether we stay in the single market 
whether we retain the free movement of people, whatever we do, if and when we leave the EU, certain things are going to happen that are going to make some people really angry and really upset. And she's issued a shock value challenge to say, right, what can we do about this Mm. beforehand in advance? Let's get everybody's cards on the table and let's find some way through a new government that can actually mitigate against all the worst case scenarios from happening. And I think, (coughs) I don't know, but it looks to me at the certain, at this moment in time, like certain politicians are angling towards getting out of this vote in one way or another. Now, you, well, Matt, you know, well, your brother's suddenly become a whole lot more famous than you for one particular reason this week. In a nutshell, explain what your brother's been talking about. <laughs> in, a, in a nutshell, do I understand what my brother's... So, well, I'll say it in two uh, No, no, let me do, I'll, I'll work it through. So the... Well, keep it in layman's terms and in okay. a nutshell. Okay. So the referendum, to start with, isn't a commitment... It's, it's basically an opinion poll exactly. that, that Parliament can follow or not follow. So it's all political. Whether they want to follow it is political. Um, and they probably are going to follow it because it would take a very brave politician to, to turn down 52% of the country. But the way, I, the way he explains it is, once you trigger Article 50, mm. you can't go back. No. So... The, the the trick is to do all the negotiation before Article 50, before you trigger it. Because by triggering Article 50, you're basically breaching breaching the, the constitution of the country because you're committing the country to something that it doesn't know anything about. Mm. And politicians have to act on for the best of the country. Yes. And so triggering Article 50 now wouldn't be acting in the, the best this... wishes of the best deal of the country because they don't mm. know what's going to happen. No. But they can't negotiate anything before Article 50 because the EU won't let them. No. no. So at the moment, there's a kind of a stalemate that there's no negotiation that... <laughs> take place until it ha- is triggered yeah. and you can't trigger it without the negotiation. So and this... Britain's about to get, if we if we trigger Article 50, it'd be like being chucked out of the house without picking your clothes up. Yeah, exactly. There we go. That's but, and it's... Yeah. <laughs> but basically, it revolves around a law that dates back to 1975. There's layers that date back to yeah. the, the 16th century. But basically, I think the 1975 bit is the bit that's yeah. the most yeah. relevant bit. And this basically, you would need to repeal this law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what it boils down to is either they... Well, not either. Basically, what it boils down to is Parliament would have to meet and the politicians would have to vote to repeal this law, mm-hmm. at which point, out of 650 MPs, you had 500 of them supporting Remain and only 100 supporting Leave? Yeah. Well, this law is technically nothing to do with the referendum. Mm-hmm. So, 
if you've got 500 MPs who want this law to remain in place and 150 who want it repealed, yes. and technically this law's got nothing to do with the referendum, those 500, 500 MPs can say, well, my constituents, in spite of the fact that they voted 52-48 in favour of leave, have given me no mandate whatsoever as regards to this law, mm. but they have mandated me to do what I think is best as an MP by voting me in at my constituency, so I will do what I think is best in terms of how I feel about my constituents and not repeal this law, which means that Article 50 never gets invoked. Which, again, it's going to take somebody brave to not invoke Article 50, but by the same token, it's going to take a whole lot of brave people to get to the point at which it can be invoked. Mm. So as Matt says, you're in a catch-22 situation, a kind of a stalemate here. And this is why I think these politicians are angling around the issues over this, because I think they want to bring... I don't know. I think there's a feeling in Parliament that they want to bring the country around to a point at which they can say to the country, look, it's not going to happen and we're not going to leave. And here are the reasons, and it's for the best. And we know that a lot of you are going to be disappointed. But look, we now can use this as a bargaining tool to improve the European Union and get the things that we wanted without actually having to leave it. Which presupposes that all those people who voted in the referendum want particular things. Mm. Mm. When, let's face it, the Leave campaign was such a smorgasbord of bullshit Nobody actually knows what the people who voted Leave want. No, no. Particularly, I mean, we know there were certain particular things that were more the prevalent during the campaign the, on than the, the other. Yeah, there are. Yeah, but no. So the louder voices. I don't know. It looks to me like people are angling towards a position where, and I'm not saying that it's not ever going to happen. You can't tell at this point, but I think people are looking into the possibilities of it not happening. And I think this is why you've still got posturing from people like Cameron and why you've got posturing from people like May, because they're trying to work out how tenable the position is that they can come into power and not trigger Article 50. Mm. Does that sound remotely likely? I've, I doubt it. I do, I, well, and I'm only going by what, what I've heard. <clears throat> so I'm saying they're looking at the possibilities. Come, come September, October somebody will get in and they'll trigger Article 50. I think regardless of the... The legitimacy the, the, of the, it. Yeah, it'll just be triggered. Well, it depends who and then, And then we'll spend the next two, three years spending money and making deals to get back to where we were when we were part of the EU. Which is the ridiculous thing the, about yeah, it. Yeah, that's what we've committed to. We've committed to just to just trying to claw back to where we were before, but with less influence and paying them more money. I think the one thing that will or won't be most telling in all of this is, this is something I think there's a vague chance of happening, but it's a possibility, and I don't know, I suppose as the next few weeks go on, it will become apparent whether it's more or less likely or not, Will David Cameron dissolve Parliament before he goes? Will David Cameron be the one to call a general election? Because I think, I still think David Cameron wants to do whatever he can that, to make sure we don't leave the EU. He's still a Remainer and he knows his legacy now. He sees the politician who resigned, the Prime Minister who resigned over a stupid referendum that he didn't want in the first place. He's committed to go. 
by October. So I don't think he'll be allowed to call a general election because by the time the election takes place, he'll have gone. Well, so yeah, he but it will only be, be November. So he'd be committing committing the, his replacement. And, and you wouldn't call a, an election when you're about to change the leader of the party because well mm, yeah but you're talking historically i don't think there's much. any precedent for what's going on at I mean, the moment i'm not sure he'd be allowed to i think there would probably be rules in the in the party well, until he's actually, yeah but until he's actually resigned there's not actually anything to stop him i don't know I, well i i would imagine there would be i'd imagine that there's some sort of rule somewhere to say that to say that if you're not going to be the leader by the time the election takes place then you can't call the election yeah but and also Theresa, you think? Theresa May has said that she wouldn't call an election until 2020 and I think he'd have to respect that but yeah but maybe that's why he would yeah I don't know but no, but I, I mean from a purely moral point of view or well, somebody should <laughs> from a purely moral point of view if David Cameron's not going to be the leader of the Tory party from October mm -hmm. from a moral point of view he should call an election so the country gets to decide mm. well from yeah. a moral point of view, yeah. the referendum should be annulled anyway. Of, <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Actually, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Because of the amount all of lies, these... misinformation. Uh, it, surely... And this is what I'm saying. All these possibilities are presenting themselves. And you can bet your ass that if somebody who talks about Doctor Who once a week for 60 minutes is thinking these things, well, the people in Parliament are thinking these things too. Do, rather than annul it, because that's quite a dramatic step, or calling a general election, I don't know why there isn't some sort of inquiry set up Yes. Through the courts, get somebody, get somebody independent to mm. look at the whole situation and to look at the legal implications of Article Fifty. Just taking a step back from it. I mean, the Chilcot inquiry took ten years, mm. but maybe that wouldn't be a bad idea. <clears throat> but somebody set up some of the, one of these inquiries just to look at it and go through everything, mm. and then get them to make a decision about what to do. Mm. Mm. That's the, which might just be called a second referendum which to might, ratify. Well, yeah, but the if, first. They, if they think that's that's legally required, then yeah. Or it might be invoke Article Fifty and leave the EU and just do it because they'll decide that that's the fair thing. But at the moment, you've got still got two campaigns going on, and I don't feel like I've stopped campaigning. No, no. no. and I don't feel like I should stop campaigning either. No. Well, I think we've people, all started campaigning more. Yeah, People, people talk about you know reconciliation and sweeping it under the carpet. But what I've discovered is fifty-two percent of the country don't feel the same way about the country that I do. No. And my inclination is to you know carry on trying to well, that's not... understand them and mm. fix that. Mm. Mm. But that's not something that. that yeah. People keep saying this. The there was a vote. This is what was decided. Get over it. Yeah. Something like 24% of the population voted to leave the EU. And okay, so 23% of the population voted to stay in the EU. But that means that, like, you've got 55% of the population whose opinion on this you don't know. Now, okay, they didn't set in place rules about it needing to be a 60-40 vote to carry the motion. Hmm. Because it was an advisory referendum anyway, which is non-legally binding. So there is no motion to be carried insofar as the referendum itself is concerned. Mm. But by the same, you know, by the same token that Nigel Farage said before the referendum took place, if it's anything less than 60-40 in favour of Remain, I would want a second referendum. Mm. 
from where we're sitting, there's absolutely no reason we shouldn't campaign for a second referendum on the fact that it didn't go 60-40 the other way. And I would say to anybody who's listening to this, if you've not signed this petition and you think there should be a second referendum, just sign the petition because worse, yeah, it's it not going to hurt. You might, yeah, I, I, I did it as much as a, a feeling of felt so bloody useless that just to be able to do something. Yeah, yeah. that I felt was a positive. I think, I think let's face it, whether there's one or not, yeah. asking for one cannot hurt. No. I think using what Farage says before the election probably isn't the reason to do it because no, I'm not saying that's the don't reason listen to, to do it. Anything Farage says and <laughs> no. take it seriously because he says anything. Mm. Well, he walked to into the uh, he walked into the European Parliament for the first time since he's been elected, wasn't it? I think that's his first visit. Well, no, I read somewhere that he'd been once out of forty-three oh, right. sittings, okay. and that once obviously is right yesterday. Okay. So uh, he's. And he walks in there and says that none of you have ever had a proper job. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the man who was a commodities broker before he went into politics and who hasn't turned up for 42 out of 43 sittings of the parliament he was elected into. So talking about not having a proper job. And people listen to him. Yeah. That's and the and amazing sure thing. the people who voted for him to, to be that. Expected him to. What I don't understand is that there's something like five or seven percent of UKIP voters voted Remain. <laughs> did, you, did you see that? Really? Yeah. What? What? Did they? Did they what? just get the cross in the wrong place? What were they doing? UKIP is entirely set up to vote yeah. in one place. That's the it's dream, in the name. The dream referendum mm. that they wanted since they were started, and some UKIP members voted voted Remain. Really strange. Really strange. Mm. Yeah. Idiots. <laughs> I don't know. Labour? Well, the, the, I mean, Labour at the moment is is taking the opportunity to do a bit of infighting. Yeah, rather than I taking the opportunity is... to have a go at the open goal, as far as I'm concerned, but anyway. Well, except I'm not, sure, I'm not sure there is an open goal. I don't think... I don't think, well, actually, I think the, the Tory party are sort of... are kind of reconciling quite neatly. But Labour, Labour really, I heard that if there was a general election now, mm. then Labour would be wiped out to the point that they were at in the 1930s. Mm. And they would seriously become the, the third party. So the fourth. The SNP would become the <laughs> official opposition. Right. If, if there was a vote now. And if the Lib Dems campaigned right. on a, if we get in, we will annul the result of the referendum, Labour would be fourth. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so Labour isn't strong at the moment. So no. they need somebody else. It's guaranteed that there's going to be there's going to be recriminations, and it's this bizarre Alice in Wonderland situation where you have the Leave campaign fronted by somebody who may very well have voted Remain, which is Boris Johnson, and the Remain campaign led by somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, who may very well have voted Leave. Mm. <laughs> in the end. It's insane. It's nuts. Yeah. And you can tell that that's... Yeah. And this is the thing. Whatever you think of Jeremy Corbyn as a man, and whatever you think of Jeremy Corbyn's politics, Mm. some of his politics, not necessarily all of them, as we'll probably get into in a minute, he's not a statesman. 
And during that campaign, he didn't appear to understand that he was the spokesman for his party and his party's position. And as much as anybody else lost the referendum for Remain, he did too, because Mm. only two-thirds of Labour supporters voted Remain. If he'd have come out and been very forceful in his position and not gone on holiday for two weeks in the middle of the campaign or whatever it was. You also don't say that you're seven out of ten sure about something if you're campaigning for it. You just keep, you just say, I'm sure about something. You don't, you don't qualify. Yeah, say, like a member of the public as opposed to yeah. spearheading that. I mean, for God's sake, you didn't have Boris Johnson getting up on podiums and say, look, I'd rather we stay in Europe, mm. but this is the Leave campaign, yeah. so it's probably nice if you voted Leave. Yeah, mm. which is effectively what Jeremy Corbyn did on other issues as well. I mean, today as we speak, you've had the um, inquiry into anti-Semitism, mm. <laughs> yeah, in the Labour Party, and Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, in amongst everything else that's been said and gone on, some pretty horrible things have been said and gone on, from what it sounds like. Jeremy Corbyn's come up with this rather bizarre statement, which on the face of it seems, again, like a man-in-the-street type of thing to say. Mm. But this is something that was in a speech that was written up on an autocue that he was reading from. So this has presumably been gone over by him and his advisers. So at that point, you have to think, is he making a statement about something else that's not in the actual words he's using because what he's done essentially he compared the jewish government with isis he's he seemed well yeah he either did that or he compared israel with islamic states such as saudi arabia and iran rather than isis but but what i mean when i say he he compared he he uses the phrase islamic state with an s and as soon as you use the phrase or he's used the phrase so-called Islamic State. And as soon as you use that phrase, then people hear ISIS, I think. And what I mean when I say has made a comparison is I don't mean he said this thing is the same as that thing. No, But no. comparison means that you draw some kind of an illusion between the two. You do. As to not necessarily even how they're similar, but sometimes how they differ. Mm. But by drawing a comparison of any kind between those two things, and I mean... If that hadn't been what he was intending to do, that would have been rewritten, surely, before he came out and said it. Again, I don't think think he was making a point about that, because the statement as it stands is fairly bloody obvious, really. Mm. Not everybody who lives in Germany during 1940 is a Nazi. Not everybody who's a Muslim supports ISIS. Not everybody who's Jewish supports what the the Israeli government does. That's a fairly obvious statement. To make it, you have to have uh, some kind of subtext going on there, some something else you want to say. And I don't know whether... You see, I don't know. Is it possible that Jeremy Corbyn realises that his position's untenable but is too proud to resign and so has done something that he thinks might turn people against him enough so that he can run and lose... Because as things stand, he's going to run and win. I don't know. Is he putting doubt into people's minds? Or has he got some other reason for having doing this, having done this? There's got to be a reason he's done it. I've, I've no idea. <laughs> I don't know. But I doubt it's as sort of thought through and as it's, Machiavellian as, as all that. 
I don't know. It's chaos at the moment. It is. That's well, a, I'll tell you what, maybe one of his not... speech writers this... has put that in. But also this is this is exactly the sort of situation with the with the Tories and Labour and the whole the whole thing that's just feeding conspiracy theories and people making sort of elaborate plots for individuals. Because Be, But nobody nobody could have planned for exactly this situation. They're, well, yeah. they're really winging they're really winging it. Well everybody's winging nobody it. Nobody quite knows what's going on. But by the same token, if you're winging it, then you're you looking at every single thing you do through a micro magnifying glass yeah. and being yeah. very careful. Mm. And so every time so you know, I'm throwing in conspiracy theories for the sake of throwing in conspiracy theories, but what I'm saying is everything that's happening at the moment every time somebody opens their mouth you've got to look at what they're saying and think to yourself what do they actually mean by saying that mm. rather than you know what do the words say because it's about more than the words at the moment at the moment it's about personalities and possibilities it also depends on when that speech was written um, <clears throat> so this was in response to an, inqu that's true. an inquiry so the speech might have been written it may, he, it, may, it may have been written, you know. No, he only he only ago. got to see the results of the inquiry the night before. But so they wouldn't have just started writing the speech then. They would have written most of the speech before the no, results that of the inquiry and been, then adapted it. That speech would have been gone through this morning. Yeah, well, yeah. And it, it, just to have it in, well, you know. Who knows? I can't help but think that it wouldn't have been in there if somebody, whether it be him or somebody else, wasn't thinking this is going to get picked up on. Because then you've got the um, Rama Chakrabarti, is it? Who was the head of the... Shamra Chakrabarti. Who's the head of the inquiry, has to go out in public with the press and defend him afterwards. Mm. You don't defend somebody if you don't think they've done anything wrong. You don't defend somebody if the perception isn't that they've done something wrong. And you don't defend somebody if there wasn't an action that could be read as that. So this line in this speech is seen as an action. Whether it was a deliberate action or an accidental action, it is seen as something that is a thing as opposed to just something that happened. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's all very... Is there anything else we've missed? Do you want to talk about the actual lies of the Leave campaign? After 50 minutes? <laughs> well, I mean, it's worth, I don't think there's a lot. I go into work and the people I'm working with have no idea that any of these things have come out. Mm. They're mm. just not watching the news. I mean, it's, it's frustrating and it's quite upsetting. Well, that's, shall we say I mean, what some the, of them that's are? The, uh, For uh, people listening to this yeah. podcast might not be aware of the thing. The 350 million promise to the NHS per week that was made on the side of the bus that Boris Johnson was driving around in for weeks before the campaign. I mean, it was on the day when the result was announced mm. that, was it John Hannum? No, who was it who went on to... Oh, Farage. Went on no, um, said, no, it wasn't Farage. It was, was it? I think so, yeah. Oh, more than one person, I think. Or Farage as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah said, yeah. no, actually, we can't make well, that well, promise. Farage, there was, and a, mistake. There was a mistake. It should never have been said. Yeah, yeah right. no, somebody else came up afterwards and actually said as well, no, they won't be getting it. No. I think, as far but as they I were saying that They were saying that before the election, just people weren't listening. Well, exactly. Because 350, whatever. And that's oh, what I mean. Oh, no, I think the, as, as close as that they got to was saying, oh, it may not. It right. may not. Yeah. 
So they weren't ruling it out. And now they're saying, essentially, it won't. No. No. In in fact, we want it to be insurance-based or... Will immigration be... Oh, bloody Farage. There's an old quote from him. Not that old a quote from him from a couple of years or so ago saying he'd rather have a private healthcare system and get rid of the NHS altogether. Mm. But his party voted him down on it so he couldn't put it into the manifesto. Um, will immigration be staunched? No. Almost certainly not, because in order to have free movement of goods, we will also need to have free movement of people, because the EU has what they call the, the four F's, or is it something, is it the four F's they call it? I I think they call it the four F's. It's pretty interlinked. Well, the the European Union's rules are, and these are the rules by which Norway and Switzerland have to abide. If you want free movement of goods, of uh, services, of money, Mm. then you also have to have free movement of people. I think they call it the four F's because it's the four free movements or something like that. The four M's, something. So immigration, unless we decide as a country to actually cease trading with the EU and try and make individual trade agreements with all the countries we want to trade with, including the 27 countries who are still in the EU. Mm. And I don't see that that's actually possible since they're still in the EU because surely they'd be making arrangements with us through their EU membership. No, and people have already, like, leave campaigners have already said, no, we'll stay in the single market. You have to. Yeah, yeah. It's something like 60% of our exports. Yeah. 70% of our exports go into the European single market. But we'll have to pay for that. We'll have to pay more than we were paying before for that. And we won't get a say in it. Well, this is the thing. We're paying extra to have less influence. This is the thing. Thanks. Norway, (laughs) Norway abide by something like 75% of the European Union's rules. They pay, I don't know what they pay, they pay a figure to be in the single market, abide by 75% of the European Union's rules, have no say in what those rules are. Because they're a member of the single market, they're allowed to... um, put their ideas forward mm. but those ideas are just ideas that they're very ground yeah. of making the rules and by the time you get into the room to make the rules because they're not a member of the eu they're not in the room mm. so norway have got no say in when the rules are actually decided and norway have got per head of population more immigration than the united kingdom mm. So, by leaving the EU, we will pay more than the $350 million a week that we're paying at the moment, minus the stuff that we get back in subsidies and grants. We will probably have as many, if not more, immigrants, and we will not be at the table the, the when bot- the laws are being made that we will have but, to abide yeah, by. The, bot- the bottom line... Tap us on the shoulder for the money that yeah. they used to get from the EU. And Wales the, as well. The, okay. bottom, the bottom line is, before this, before this vote, we were comparing ourselves quite happily to places like America and China and Germany. We had that sort of influence. It's after the vote, everybody started to compare us with Norway and Iceland. <laughs> yes. And Switzerland. We're lovely countries, really nice, obviously really nice countries, but, but they're, they're not, not a global, global superpower. I mean, we weren't a global superpower, but we had a huge amount of influence. Influence, and, yeah, certainly. And we yeah. had a, a certain amount of res- respect. 
<laughs> and we've just lost the influence and respect. Thanks. <laughs> it's uh, well, that's because a, some people want to invoke Operation Golden Age and go back to a time before the NHS, a, before the welfare state, mm. before there were any rules about how long a working week would be, when the average man, working man's life expectancy was less than half what it is now. And my, my, job, my job is to try and basically sell postgraduate degrees to, to students from other countries. So my job is now trying to convince students in other countries that we're not racist. Now, I think your job actually now is walking into the job centre and picking up a cheque for £30 a week. Actually, well, actually, I've just found out that the university is going to be all right. The university is going to be slightly better off under, under Brexit. Oh, really? Biz- bizarrely, yeah. Because we won't, we, we lose EU students, but we just get more international students who pay And the international fees. students okay. pay more, right. yeah. Potentially. Mm. Well, that's the so, other thing so about... So my job's all right. But this is, the, this is the thing about the whole vote, is quite often the Remain, the people who voted Remain and the places who vote Remain are going to be impacted on less and downgraded or, you know, hit yeah. less yeah. than the places and the people who voted Leave. Mm. They're the ones that are really going to be vulnerable. Well, obviously being here, Exeter, there's that little lovely little golden nugget in the middle of the blue, isn't it? There's also quite a strong city, and the university's a really strong one. And it's got the Met Office, which is going to be hit. So it's actually quite a safe place to be. We're all right, Mm. broadly speaking. It's the people in in places like Boston and Lincolnshire. Who are going and Cornwall, who and Cornwall, who are going to be hit? Yeah, I made the joke about you know yeah. I've expected is Cornwall the the foot that we've shot off. You know they yeah. got their answer. I don't know whether you saw that. Oh no, did they get their answer? They got their answer. Yeah. They said, "Are we still going to get?" Well, I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Once we leave the EU, are we still going to get the millions we currently get from the EU? No, you're not going to get the millions you currently get from the EU. The question actually is, once we leave the EU, are we still going to get the millions, regardless of whether it's coming from EU or the mm. UK government? And David Cameron said today, no, you're not. Mm. He said, well, he said yeah. you'll get some, but not well, all of it. Well, it's, co- it's committed until 2020, and that was all it was ever going to be anyway from the EU. But it's going to be I, from what i understand it's going to be re, it's going to be distributed in a different way so it's going to be distributed towards places that are already up and running and places that can prove that they've already mm, got mm. systems in place and this is again a university thing because we've got exeter this is great for people in other countries exeter has a campus in cornwall so what they're doing is immediately starting to say we're building all these new buildings we mm. can take the money immediately and show a real benefit yeah. So they get yeah. they give the money to that. So it's going to be slightly same amount of money, but slightly slightly distributed. Probably actually, way. the people who could most do with it then are going to be the ones least likely to get it. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. 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 Well, same old yeah. story, just more severe. Well, we've we've given. They would leave. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that says it all, really, doesn't it? Mm. You know, the place that probably per head of population is the most subsidised by the EU in the country votes leave. Mm. So I'm an idealist. Uh, one of the latest things to come on the news is the fact that the Green parties have re- they've reached out to the Liberals. Yeah, that's a nice idea. I know, and the Labour and yeah. uh, SNP as well. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and Plaid Cymru. Yeah, 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 as let's join forces and, and mm. produce a proper opposition to the Conservatives. Yes, whether it would be as a single party or just as a sort of a 
Yeah, like, conglomeration sort of. of yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense in my head. But then yeah, I've but got then, all those sort of brains. Yeah, you know, the issue with that is mm. the trade-offs. Yeah, and this is why these things don't happen very often. Because if you know the Scottish National Party want to get in bed with the Greens, they're doing the very well say, on their own, aren't they? So yeah, yeah, the Greens say, "Well, what do we get out of it?" And the Scottish National Party says, "A leg up." What do we get out of it? Mm. And the Green Party has to come up with something in well, return. It's, it's more of an issue that the Green Party. One of the the main conditions is uh, proportional representation. Yeah, exactly. And, and well, this is the thing with did the quite well without proportional representation in the last government. But who knows? I mean. It, Everything's on the table at the moment because Brexit was such a sort of seismic shift mm. that who knows what's going to happen. It's a really, really big thing. Mm. Mm. Oh, it's just the last few days, it's like almost you couldn't go an hour without something else happening. It's just been ridiculous, really, hasn't it? Speaking of going for an hour, we've, we've been, been going, going for an hour. hour. <laughs> Start the Starburst Blue Box podcast. <laughs> Hasn't quite mentioned Doctor Who yet. I'm quite sure that somewhere at the other end of the country, Mike and Martin are talking politics as well. Yeah. Shall we talk about Doctor Who then? Okay. Yeah. Well, I think we've probably talked for far too long to actually get into the subject we had because we've got a bunch of other things to talk I about. I don't as think well. it'd be fair on the episode we were going to look at. Well, I'd like to. Right, let's focus. We've got a bunch of other things to talk about. Let's see how far that takes us. Okay, Simon, I'm going to give you the table first. Okay. Because there's something you want to bring up. Well, something that we're all involved in, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Help. yeah. yeah so, okay, Seasons of War, yeah, so as of now, basically, as we're speaking, is up for pre-order as a, a physical print book. Mm. Yeah, I might get this one. <laughs> I don't know yet. Do you not usually buy books, Matt? Is that not really a thing of yours? I pick and choose books. Yeah. I think we all do, really. Otherwise, we'd buy, be buying all of them. <laughs> that's a really. That's not likely to say something. Is. Let's anyway, talk about yeah. Seasons yes. of War. Sorry. <laughs> Go on, Simon. Giving you the table to talk okay, about Seasons of okay. War. Okay. Well, I mean, regular listeners of the podcast will know that we've been involved with Seasons of War, which was essentially a book set up to raise some money for a children's charity. Um, and off the back of that, focus around the War Doctor, which at the time was a character who didn't seem to be getting any more kind of coverage. Well, a life beyond the 60 minutes yeah. odd that he was on screen mm. during the day of the Doctor. Yeah. So uh, Declan May saw that as an opportunity, as something to focus on and get a load of writers together to write a book to to raise money for but to be charity. fair so what happens when these things happen is that there is always an absolute host of fan fiction about these things mm. all declan really did was say right if the fan fiction is going to exist anyway let's use it as a tool to make some money for a charity yeah yeah and but let's, so but let's do it to a standard well yeah and he and the initial thing of it was he said to various people whose acquaintance he had, I guess, look, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to be, it is going to be fan fiction, mm. but by doing it in this way, we can do it with a purpose. And these people have said, A, yes, that seems like a good avenue to go down on the fan fiction side. Because let's face it, in a way, the new adventures and everything else, big finish, is to a degree a fan fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
And so what this book is done has done is kind of find a middle big finish finds a middle ground between the kind of fan fiction that's just published on the internet without any kind of editorial oversight and the actual television series Mm -hmm. and big finish is obviously a whole hell of a lot closer to the sort of official level of the tv series than it is of the fan fiction with no editorial content Mm -hmm. but it's still somewhere in between and people have looked at this people have you know, the, I don't can't think of the word I want, but you, people like Gary Russell and Andrew Smith and George Mann, who mm. did the Engines mm. of War book, have looked at this and said, yeah, that's something I can get on board with because although it might be entirely unofficial, it's also in some ways it has more of, well, more editorial content. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you kind of know that it's going to have more of a structure. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind of got a structure and it's doing a good deed at the same time. Mm-hmm. So all these people, like the three I've just named, and a whole bunch more, Jenny Colgan, all sorts of others. I don't know, Simon, name me some names off the top of your head. Um, who've got Matt Fitton? What, Matt Barber. Yay! Dr. Uh, Matt Barber. Thank you. Thank you. Um, who else have we got? Who else have we got? I, I don't know, say. there's a bunch in there, isn't there? John, yeah. John Peel. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he yeah. is, isn't he? Yeah. 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 Um, I'm forgetting the contents list myself. There's so many people. Barnaby Ethan Jones. Yeah. Mm. He's in it. Declan's pool. And and the thing was that these were all all disparate stories. These were all separate things that came from everyone's minds without necessarily the knowledge what everyone else was writing. But Declan's pulled it together into almost a chronology. Actually, a funny story about that. Go on then. Well, because I was in on it from the start with Declan. Yeah. And so I wrote my story specifically to cover one of the arcs he wanted to have okay. going through the book. And I wrote my story and submitted it. And he said, oh, by the way, I've dropped that arc. <laughs> and I said, okay, do you want me to write something else instead? He said, no, it's all right. I'll reinstate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's just an example. But that's an example of the sort of fluidity of editorial content in that yeah. there were specific arcs he had going through. Um, I mean, I mean the, the whole season thing, I kind of was there in the ground level helping him devise that idea. Mm. But also mm. the, the book has a pretty simple arc in that it's the life of the war doctor. So it's not yeah, just, yeah. it's not just the John, the old John Hurt. It's from, from the moment birth, he changes. Yeah. Right birth to grave. Yeah. And that's the whole season's concept. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, the way we laid it out originally, uh, people won't know this and it's not in the book anymore, but it kind of is in the book as a kind of backbone <laughs> to it without being as specific. But the way we laid it out originally was let's tell this life in the form of seasons. And the original idea was that the book would be divided into four chapters, spring, summer, autumn and winter, with spring being the young wall doctor when he's at his most doctorish. Mm. Summer being when he's got used to who being the doctor is and is sort of like a real doctor type character. Mm. Autumn when he starts to have the doubts and gets drawn into the time war and winter being when he fully becomes the war doctor and gets involved in all the nastiness the war the time war entails my entire story came out of the season thing oh did it yeah well i thought because i i i I love the idea of setting something in the autumn and i thought what happens in the autumn you know plants start to decay and die so i thought you could have plants and then i had crinoids and then, and then that seemed to match. <coughs> and then people at the end of their lives. So I brought Brigadier in, 
doing a sort of a riff on the Brigadier in the Care Home, which is what we saw in the Matt Smith. Oh yeah, Matt Smith episode. So it's all this kind of idea, idea of decay and things falling apart, just at the point where the War Doctor moves from doubt into despair. Mm. And so I had all of these ideas and then failed to put them all into the story. So instead I just put a big helicopter in there because it was a bit weird. I mean, the lovely thing, the the lovely thing for us is that as, I suppose, yeah, amateur writers, essentially, I mean, Mm. uh, but working, and it's like a level playing field amongst the professional writers and amateur and it's just writers and it's just great. Mm. It's nice and that it kind of goes back to the ethos of the Big Finish Short Trips books in that sort of respect Mm. where people who'd never written before could find themselves in the short trip books rubbing shoulders with Mm. all the, you know, uh, people who were already writing. Lance Parkin, has he done something for it? I'm trying to think. I can't remember all the names. Warren, Warren, because I've got all this to look forward to because I don't have anything to read ebooks off, so I've not read a page of it yet. No, I've been waiting for the. I haven't read all of it. I've got so far because yeah, I can only read on a laptop so far. I'm, I proofread quite a <laughs> sort of various chunks of it, so I've read the, I've read some stories very carefully, but not others. I don't think I've read mm. yours, Joe. Mine's rubbish. Okay. I like yours. Really? Yeah. It's I always this is good yeah. podcasting. Whenever I put yours are always old though. Yours always bloody what? What's the word? Free textual. Yeah, but you've I like that. Sort of, you've got a sort of freeform style, mm. I think. Whereas mine's mine's very structured, but probably to a fault. Well, you're, we're doing yours, ourselves, never we're doing ourselves TV, down there. <clears throat> Let's face it, yours yours exist because of the format they're in. I would say. Yeah, I suppose they do. Whereas I would write. I always know like exactly where it. mine are going to end up though. Yeah, they just kind of freeform their way to get there. Yeah, I mean, this was the first short story I'd actually written to completion. I think in my life. Wow! <laughs> so, so I took a very, a very careful approach to it, and actually divided it up into three acts, and each act ended on a cliffhanger. So I was very, I was very kind of controlled about it, and I knew how long each act should be because I needed to keep to a certain word count. So and you edited down. So when the middle oh, yeah, chapter no, no, was, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but but this is this was Declan. This is how clever Declan was. So I wrote it all, and he said, "Oh, it's brilliant! It's perfect." Could you cut something like two thousand words off it? And I initially said, or thought, "Oh my God, can I? Can I?" And I did very, very easily. You just mm-hmm. kind of prune the scenes, and I did it fairly evenly, and still had the structure there. But he was right. I just, you know, I improved it by cutting it. I tend to write light when I write. Yeah. So that I can, if I need to go longer, I can put extra stuff in. But I tend to... And also, I I like books where stories come in at different lengths. So you don't know... Or, or when it's a novel, I like it when there's chapters of different lengths. Yeah. Right. So like you that. don't sit down and... Especially know, like short chapters. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, when you're 10 and you're reading the Target books, it's great that you know every chapter's going to be 12 pages. But when you're a grown-up and you're reading books, it's nice when you don't know if it's going to be when, three pages or 20. In no. Seasons of War, you've got... So that is what you've got. You've got yeah, different, no, and I mean, also yeah. different textures of stories as well. Mm. So there's poems in there as, as well. And there's freeform stories. There's kind of Declan's weird, James Joyce-y <laughs> kind of stories. <laughs> and there's all the bits is, that tie up everything in between as well. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, 
this well, paperback it's 15 of, quid yeah and okay. it's going to benefit the charity and it's huge. obviously it's a big yeah. book isn't it yes it's got to be what is it 400 and more pages something oh, like that there's so many stories in it though yeah we're, we're talking about it i am assuming i'm still in it it would be quite interesting if I, <laughs> if I buy the book and suddenly I discover that I've been edited out. Yeah, it'd be fine. Oh no, I think all all but maybe one story from the ebook okay. are still okay. in there. Mm. I think I believe. Mm. But um, yeah, exciting. I can't believe anybody who's listening to this wouldn't. No, mm. want but it is to a limited and... edition, and just, just to be aware that when it's gone, it's gone. It is a. I keep calling it a mayfly. No, no pun intended, because it's kind of going to be there for a bit, and then it'll just go, and that'll be it. Well, hopefully they'll have a pre-order period, and they'll make sure that anybody who orders during the pre-order period. Oh no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That is what's happening. So they'll know how limited it is when you get to the end of the pre-order period, I guess. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> right, I've got three reviews. Well, actually, four maybe, but one of them's not really relevant. Oh, just quickly going back oh, go to the writing. Of course, ten, the night we're recording now. It's the deadline, is it? Midnight tonight on the big finish competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks oh, for bringing that, that up for anybody. No, no, I'm just saying, um, when we're talking about the, the writing process, because you yes, told me most of You're listening to this and you didn't yeah, submit I, anything for the no, big finish I competition. I didn't. You've missed it. I think I'm, I'm the only fan in the country that failed to have inspiration to submit something. We know that. I spent all, all my time trying to come up with inspiration and I actually forgot to have the idea. Do you know what though? I didn't come up with an idea or any inspiration. Oh dear. I just... <laughs> no, for once, rather than coming up with an idea and working something out around the idea, I sat down and said, right, what do they need? Right. And just put a bunch of things on a piece of paper and said, right, that's your story. It's a big finished manifesto. No, not I, no, not as you mean you started writing and it came out. No, I mean I said You mean you've been writing in the bathroom again. Well I guess this podcast isn't going out till afterwards. I said, right. I said, what are the criteria? You need to have a classic doctor mm. and companion and you need to come up with something that's appropriate for them. So I <clears throat> So I, I looked at what you could do. Mm. And I looked at what people would probably do, and I said, right, what would people probably not do, but that has a level of interest. So I came up with a doctor and companion pairing that I thought would be unpopular, but that I thought were was rich enough of texture that there was plenty to get out of there. And then I said, right, you look at what this doctor and companion pairing have done, and... I specifically went into all the stories they had together and noted what they had in common mm. and then extrapolated from that the things that they hadn't done that they would have done had they been together for longer and said, right, these are the elements you need in your story. The things that are the same sort of elements as in all the other stories, but that don't actually feature in any of the other stories. And there was my story. Weirdly, I've I've been reviewing... Um, for a, another podcast, an Australian podcast, um, the tenth, which one's Eccleston? Ninth. The ninth. <clears throat> Technically, the, the ninth. Tenth. The Titan Ninth Doctor comics, and it's it's the Ninth Doctor with Rose and Captain Jack 
fighting Sladeen. Is this for the Doctor Who show? Yes. You can advertise that. Okay. I've I've been reviewing it for the... Well, I've just finished reviewing it because it's it's reached its last uh, last instalment. And that's the impression I got from them was what Kevin Scott, the writer, had done, it seemed to me, was to try and think what Eccleston's Doctor would be like in the second season Mm, that he never had. And how these stories and how the Slovene might develop if they were in Doctor Who rather than Sarah Jane. And so he took these elements from Eccleston season and kind of stretched them and warped them. Yeah. And actually a recent interview with Paul Cornell talking about the third Doctor. It sounds like that's his that's his way of, of doing it Approaching as well. Approaching that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just try and sort of, you take the elements and you stretch them slightly or you you try and sort of progress them. It's funny with my story, my, mine was a third Doctor story that's gone in um and i just want to look at some of the preconceptions and, oh, let's and, make and, a deal now actually before yeah. you say that okay because i talked about this but let's make a deal now assuming neither of us wins yeah which they've got to have a lot of entries and they're going to be better than ours so we're not yeah. gonna no. you and me we're making a pact now to write our stories in full and read them out. Oh, write them in full. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. read them out as stories on this podcast, which you can have, you know, tagged onto the end of an episode somewhere. So okay. one week you'll have my That's story, cool. and one week you'll have Simon's. That's cool. Because I don't think Lee managed to get one done. Well, he might, if have. He did, he might have. If he did, he started talking last He's month. in the pact as well. We'll yeah. make him finish his too. But my, mine was the, taking some of the. Uh, yeah, not preconceptions, just that there's a perception of the third Doctor. So I wanted to get him doing stuff that you wouldn't necessarily okay. expect or, or put him in a situation where he's got to be something other than what people perceive him to be. Right, yeah. Yours, yeah, is, no, a little, that's, 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 yours is a little poem. Hmm. Ode and, to and the third Doctor. And it's got some visual jokes. It's got to have jokes. Okay. Yeah. Does it have a helicopter? That was no. what, that was my rule for any third oh, really? third Doctor style pastiche is okay. it has to have a gratuitous helicopter at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I no, yeah, I. I think I that's, that's possibly the straw that breaks the camel's back. If if you don't if you don't get in, I'm afraid it's probably the helicopter that you've missed. Oh, it might They'll be. They'll probably yeah. be looking at all the third Doctor there possibilities is, and just no. Strangely, there is an element in my story which has been been in the news lately, and and I started writing it well before that happened. So it was a wow. bit weird. Yeah, him and Lee are always coming up with these things. Mostly Lee, to be fair, but you are too. You could always have put sorry. a helicopter in at the start instead of a jeep. Yeah. Oh, you had a jeep in it. Do you have a jeep? A, it's got a jeep. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. It's jeep. It's some sort of military hardware. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely a jeep. Yeah, from the oh, off. I think my third Doctor pastiche had a tank and a helicopter. Right. And I thought that was, yeah. <laughs> and I did a sort of James Bond style. I I looked up nineteen seventies tanks and helicopters and basically wrote a paragraph of description for each one, just to over describe each one. That kind of real sort of obsession with detail. Mm, mm. That strikes me as a third Doctor type thing to do. Oh, and also want to get give jokes some really good stuff to do. Yeah. That sounds like more of a personal thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. Does she have an encounter with the Dalek? No, no, because you weren't allowed to use the Daleks. Oh, weren't you? No. no you're only allowed to use Doctors and Companions. You weren't allowed to oh, use okay. anything else, basically. Okay. Oh. Mm. This is where I get the idea. This is so we've got an hour and forty minutes. So yeah. this is where, let's wrap up quickly. 
Right, Simon and I will be talking about a few <laughs> things while Matt goes off and taps Scribbles. away at the other end yes. of the room. Um, I got three reviews. One, two of them are Doctor Who, Big Finish. One of them's not Doctor Who, but it's very relevant because, well, it's the Children's Film Foundation strip cinema serial, Saturday Morning Kids Cinema Club from 1962. And, oh, I'm forgetting the names now. I don't have any of them in front of me. It's an adaptation of a boy's own story from the from their 50s, I think. Um, it's called Masters of Venus. It is. It's quite apparent that this is the Children's Film Foundation's answer to the Pathfinder serials of okay. 1959 and 1960 mm. from ATV that Sidney Newman did, which is probably the biggest influence on him doing Doctor Who when he arrives at the BBC. This is kind of this weird thing that the Children's Film Foundation did. They were shown on telly, I think, in the 1960s as well, and were still doing the rounds of cinema clubs in the 1970s. It's in black and white, obviously. It's eight 15-minute episodes. It's like the missing link between the Pathfinder serials and Doctor Who. There's so much in there that's so very Doctor Who. Mm. And also, it's post-Quatermass as well, so there's right. a lot of sort of post-Quatermass stuff in there. It, it starts off with a scientist, your sort of Quatermass sort of standard, um, name of Ballantyne, but it's Children's Film Foundation. So it's two kids appear at the office every day to see how the uh, rocket building program's going on. And then, <clears throat> and then these two guys, these two uh, secret agents, turn up to try and wreck the rocket program. Mm. They're planning to send this rocket to Venus with two pilots on board, so that they can leave a load of scientific equipment behind, so that we can get all this data from Venus. Because according to Masters of Venus, Venus is entirely shrouded in a cloud, so they want to get down below the cloud to put this you know, scientific equipment on the surface so we can find out what Venus is like without all these clouds around it. Why, why do I think that Masters of Venus sounds a bit like some kind yeah. of softcore pornographic? <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Yeah. Is it just because Venus... Oh, yeah, has a feminine... Oh. oh, yeah, it's definitely got a sort of Fifty Shades of Grey. So no, no, no. Am I right in saying there's one... Matt, more... you wait to see where this is going. Oh, OK, OK. Because <laughs> this is only going to... This is only going to further those fantasies that are flooding through your mind at okay. the moment. Okay. So basically, these two guys turn up to so try long as, So long as neither of the big Finnish productions refers to any sort of Fifty Shades of Grey um, masters or anything more like, sort of like that. Uh, the um, Pinot, oh, yeah. Pinot Noir <laughs> reference in Pinot, Pinot, Pinot Noir in Kimmy Schmidt. Pinot Noir? Yeah. Pinot Noir. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, obviously it's supposed to be a wine, but it means something else in Kimmy Schmidt. Okay. Pinot Noir. Pinot. Pinot Noir. <laughs> Pinot Noir. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, I see. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, these two kids out, like these two cigarette agents, who, as it transpires, have both got six fingers on each hand. Mm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> in order to Sorry. outwit these two spies, cigarette agents, whatever... They have to get onto the uh, rocket itself, and what do you know? It takes off with the two kids aboard the rocket with the two pilots, 
and they fly to Venus. And Venus isn't quite as uninhabited as you might have thought. Oh, wow. Because as Atlantis sank into the sea, they sent a rocket off to Venus (laughs) and the entire population of Atlantis have now populated a cave system under the surface of the planet Venus. Wow. That's a bit overkill, isn't it? Yes. Did they did they <laughs> they overshot the land and ended up in Venus? Oh yeah, I thought you meant the story was overkill. Oh, but the actual <laughs> no, the actual go action of yeah, going yeah. off in a rocket. Well, the story's fine. as opposed to trying to get above the, the surface. The story's really subtle, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. They had to go to Venus because they all had six fingers. The people who lived in Atlantis, and they knew that if they landed on the surface elsewhere on Earth, they'd yeah. be. Uh, Is the extra finger like off the side of the little finger? Yes, like flopping around. The Venusians. That's brilliant. When they throughout do. the entire eight episodes, wear gloves at all times. <laughs> wow. it, oh, and Venus, where we do not see a single woman. By the way, we only see men on Venus, apart from. That's ironic. Well, mm. apart from obviously, when you get there, there has to be some correlation with the two Earth kids. So you meet two Venusian kids. So Venus is entirely men. And two kids. One of them's a boy and one of them's a girl. Okay. And did, you girl... Know, did you know it's a fact that only one place on Venus is named after a man? All the rest are named after women. Mm. Oh. Are you going to reveal what this place is? I can't remember. No. I just know it's a fact. Because I wrote a piece of music years ago called The Only Man on Venus. Oh, and that was based on that fact. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. You should have named it. The only man on Venus, his name is Peter. <laughs> <laughs> He's got six fingers. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But, but, but. He's extremely good at playing guitar. Or extremely bad at it. We'll find out. Well, yeah. Oh, Venus. Very, this uh, is the bit legendary. That, this is the bit that Matt's going to like. Venus has developed a kind of binary system whereby they're overseen by a man called the master of Venus. But under the master of Venus, society has devolved, a bit like in the face of evil, into men of skill and men of action. All right, okay. Who are overseen by a master of skill and a master of action. Wow. I was going to say man of action is the bloke who writes Ben 10. Oh, really? Yeah. He goes under the name man of action. Does he? Yeah. Really? Mm. And he writes the um, Avengers cartoon as well, I think. Okay. Mm. That's quite a sort of interesting pseudonym to give yourself. Mm. It is, isn't it? It's promising a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, men of action are overseen by George Pastel. From He's from a Doctor Who story, and it's gone out of my head, Tomb of the Cybermen. Yes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's not Cleek, is it? Yes, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, as soon as the uh, Earth people get there, Venus, who've been listening to our radio transmissions all this time, because, of course, they're Earth people anyway, um, he decides to uh, have a coup where he'll kill the Earth people and bundle a load of boxes of virus that they have hanging around in a cave onto the rocket and send it to Earth to uh, destroy all humanity so that the Venusians can then follow us over, even though they don't have any rockets of their own. Yeah, it's all a bit completely insane. It's got things like the viruses. It's a little bit like Terry Nation's first Dalek serial. Right. Except done by the Children's Film Foundation. It is just 
really clunky expository dialogue so it's, from it's, start to finish. It's probably really like the 1930s American B-movie, 1930s to 50s American B-movie, which then influenced Terry Nation's Well, what it is, yeah, it is yeah. the sort of, it's the Flash Gordon serials of the 30s, updated to the 50s sci-fi B-movies, mm. updated to ATV's Pathfinder serials, and preempting things like the Dominators and the Daleks in Doctor Who. Yeah. And the Sensorites. I would say that if the Sensorites is your favourite Dalek, is your favourite Doctor Who serial, Masters of Venus would be right up your street. Well, it's going to fly off the shelves in that case. In that case. All is, these Sensorites fans is <laughs> clamouring for... <laughs> It's got a ready-made audience. It's the, yeah. like I say, it's the missing link between the thing Sidney Newman did before Doctor Who and Doctor Who. Basically. There are a few. I, I kind of yeah, somehow yeah. grew up on the Children's Film Foundation, mm. and there are a few that are kind of hazily in the mists of my memory. That so I remember the Patrick Troughton one, a Stitch in Time. Mm. We played somebody very like, but not quite the Doctor. Was it Glissable? Was that one as well? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's something so, about a Tiger it? T-shirt which stuck in my head as well. But there are a few of these things, I know that if I watched them now, they'd be really rubbish. But they kind of shaped. shaped yeah, it doesn't, I don't think it matters that it's, in my opinion, not very good. Because it's still a fascinating experience yeah. to watch yeah. it. And also, even if you went around in 1962 when it was on, you're still going to get a certain amount of nostalgia kick from it because mm. it's because it is Children's Film Foundation mm-hmm. and it does all the... Things Children's Film Foundation things always do. And it's something we don't have these days, this kind of institution making, you know, reasonable length kind of dramas, one-off dramas. No, because what you've got instead is sort of proper children's TV. Yeah. (laughs) I just remember it being the crap clip on screen test and thinking, oh, can't they play some proper films? (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean. Children's TV are obviously going to do things differently because yeah, they've got a yeah. different. They've got a different um, target's not the word I'm looking for. It's that point again where I start losing my words. Demographic. But you know, yeah, not demographic either. They've got a different motive. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you're right. The Children's Film Foundation, a bit like those um, public information films mm. that you had during the '60s and '70s. It basically it's looking for the same audience, mm. and yeah, it's not going to sell in huge amounts. They've you know they've not budgeted it such that they've got rid of all the tram lines on the film, for instance. Right, you know the film could have been restored better than it is. It's a really nice crisp picture, but mm. about five of the eight episodes have got tram lines on them. Mm. Not so much that they distract, but they're there. You know, if they'd had more budget because they were expecting greater sales, mm. they'd have got rid of them. But they didn't, so they're obviously not expecting to shift huge amounts. But I think anybody who's listening to this who was into 60s Doctor Who, or is into 60s Doctor Who, I should say, this is probably pretty much a must-buy in those terms. Because although I gave it a 6 out of 10 in my review, and I'm saying it's not great, it might not be great, but it is essential. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But yeah, I... The Sensorites is it's like the Daleks in terms of plotting done as the Sensorites in terms of sensibility, if you know right. what I mean. Yeah. It makes about as much sense. Sounds a bit like Underwater Menace in terms of tone as well. 
Well, funny you should say that, because there's a bit in the final episode where George Pastel's on the rocket ship, pointing towards Earth, and says, Nothing in the world can stop me now. Does he actually do that? Yes, he does. Oh, Oh, God. In fact, he even follows it up with, Death to the people of Earth. (laughs) Wow. I mean, but this is the level at which this thing has been put together. All the people on Earth are very posh, RP, really well-to-do, really plummy vowels, and the entire cast on Venus is foreign actors. Mm. And it's not all foreign actors from the same country, so they're all different... Well, no, there's no black people in there, to be fair, but they're kind of different shades of not white. Yeah. Different accents makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, it might it might in Britain today. Well, but you know what <laughs> I mean. Very popular now. Oh no, no, no! It makes no sense in terms of what they were trying to <laughs> yeah, say. Yeah. But they've literally just cast yeah. entirely foreigners as the population of Venus, yeah. including the girl in it is Senior Merton, who is Susan's friend from Marco Polo. Oh, okay. Oh. So and she's excellent, actually. Mm-hmm. You just reminded me. Did you had you noticed that Channel Four? I was watching Channel Four the other night, and they've started introducing announcers with all manner of different accents. Oh, they've been doing that for a while. Oh, have they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, d- I didn't know if it was a reaction to the the other oh, thing no, that no. we talked about. No, 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 no. That's been going on for ages. Oh, good. Good. But also, I mean, not just different accents, but also completely different sensibilities as well because mm, mm. the announcers on you're talking about the continuity announcers yes, yes. on TV part of their job is to write their own script mm. by either watching forward or reading praises of the programs that are coming up mm. and on channel 4 they will do things like I don't know and this is an example that's turned up on the podcast before because I see this not regularly but regularly enough oh, They'll introduce an episode of Hollyoaks by telling you what the cliffhanger at the end of the episode is. You know, if say, for example, and this is not an example that's happened in the TV series, but say, for example, the cliffhanger at the end is somebody's about to get shot. They'll introduce Hollyoaks by saying, well, and now for the next half an hour, Hollyoaks, at the end of which you'll find out who gets shot. Whenever Channel Channel 4 is mentioned and you bring up an example, it's always always Hollyoaks. Because that's you, what I see. <laughs> wow. I don't have so any control over the remote. I, I, I think anything we watch on Channel 4 at the moment is either the news or the last leg. Mm. I just watch films now. Mm. Yeah. I just don't. Yeah. And time lash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said on Facebook the other day, I'm about to go in and watch time lash. Somebody's going to pay for this. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you were thinking when you wrote it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. The the main problem I'm having with Time Nash is it's really dull, and I'm going to have to rewatch episode one because I just drifted off. I just started ignoring it. Serves you right. Oh. No, I can choose it. I really like the blue bloke. I don't mean it no, serves no, you right no, for choosing no, it. I mean it no, serves you right for drifting off. The, the different elements are great, but the story and the way they're put together. It's really dull. They've got really interesting elements that they put together really dully. Mm. But I've got, uh, yeah, I'll think about it. Mm. I'm sure it'll pick up an episode. How many episodes is it? I haven't even, is it two? It's a two-part, 45-minute. Yeah. Okay. That's the obvious joke is too many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Masters of Venus, I'd recommend anybody who likes 60s Doctor Who go out and get it because regardless of how good you think it is, you're still going to love it. 
Uh, two big finishes to review, both of which... Oh, yeah, I'm itching. To, I read your review of one of them, and I'm itching to hear it. Yeah, it's The Two Masters, which is John Dorney. And what did Andrew Smith call him? Do you remember? He called him the Robert Holmes of Big Finish. Mm. Mm. It's... Well, it's the third part of a trilogy. We don't need to know the other two parts, because I... I I've not heard of the other two parts, and that didn't make any difference to my experience of listening to this. I think it's a trilogy in terms of they've just put three stories together. One is one of the masters, one is the other of the masters, and then in the third one, you get both of the masters. There are certain elements from other things that have been in Big Finish before, but nothing you'd need to know, because anything that needs explaining does get explained, and mostly it doesn't need explaining. It's four half-hour episodes. It's... Jeffrey Beavers as the master from the Keeper of Trargan. And it's Alexander McQueen mm-hmm. as the big Finnish master who's in the Eighth Doctor stories. The Dark Eyes. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. Doom Coalition or Something whatever like it is. That. Yeah. It's... Right, this is going to be really difficult to talk about in terms of plotting without giving anything away. The... Two masters, one of them is trying to kill the other. Okay. It's about one of the masters trying to assassinate the other master. And already I've spoiled a revelation that doesn't turn up until about a third of the way through the story sometime in the second episode or something. (laughs) There's no way you can really talk about it without giving away something. Right. And the seventh doctor, travelling by himself, actually. Mm. There's no... Well... I won't say there's no companion in this, because, again, I'd be giving things away. He turns up in what looks to be a sequel to a previous Seventh Doctor Big Finish story. Only the one of the two masters also turns up as well, and then some weird shit happens, and you suddenly become aware of the fact that the story you think you're listening to all the stuff that you thought was important is just, you know, background. And all the stuff that looked like it was just some kind of weird background stuff that was probably going to tie in somewhere is actually the main event. Mm. And then, and this is, and there's seventh doctor story and you know how Delta and the Bannermen starts off at the toll station and you don't actually get into Mm. the holiday camp really till episode two. Yeah. The best bit. Yeah. So you've got, well, I'm just giving an example. I really, of that. Yeah, I really like Dalton Bannerman. Yeah, me Sorry. too. But I'm giving an example of a McCoy story that starts off with yeah. one episode no, as no, one so, thing, yeah. and then the rest of the story is something yeah. else. Yeah. This is a bit like that. That first episode is one thing, and kind of at the end of that first episode, you suddenly become aware of what the story is going to be, mm. Mm. and then the rest of it has a kind of it's got a structure a bit like a pyramid. The rest of it is like you're climbing various levels to get to a point at which you start to understand it. And then at the exact midway point of the story is written in, it's not even a small thing, this big thing that suddenly explains everything. Mm. But then you go down the other side of the pyramid, and as you're going down the other side of the pyramid, you realise that the explanation you've had it's only part of the story. So as you are climbing the pyramid and adding layers onto your understanding on the way up, 
as you come down the other side, it's like you're tearing away the layers of understanding mm. to get to the truth of what's going on. Okay. It's called The Two Masters, which is obviously a riff on things like The Three Doctors and The Two Doctors, and that's really obvious. Mm. It's a really obvious title. But unlike in those other stories where The Three Doctors and The Five Doctors and The Two Doctors, they were just stupid titles yeah. to tell you what was in it mm. that had nothing to do with the story. In this... Not only has John Dorney used a title to remind you of something from the classic series, but he's also built it into its story so that the, not the title itself, but the concept of the title is relevant to the resolution of the story right. or to the layers of understanding that you're peeling back on your mm. way down the other side of the pyramid. The way I put it at the end of the review is, if you get landed with a big Finnish audio in front of you that's called The Two Masters, you're going to say, right. That's never going to live up to what I imagine it will be. Mm. You get to the end of the four 30-minute episodes and you're thinking, right, what I imagined it could be is nowhere near what it actually turned out to be. Mm. He's done a really good job of writing something that's <coughs> really dense and complicated and doing it in a way that simplifies it to the extent that you don't need to be a PhD in time paradoxes to figure out what's going on, but with really nice characterization, so that everything in there makes sense in terms of both the sci-fi and the plotting, and the characters too. Mm. And it, it's all based on this twist. You said quite, quite a few characters in there, didn't you? You said there's quite a... Well, the, the sort of... If basically, it comes down to three characters. Okay. Four characters, perhaps. There's a... It's got two different civilizations or two different aspects of civilizations, whatever you want. And one of them one of them gets introduced sort of in the middle of the second episode. And again, you think it's going to be this throwaway thing. And you think, and i tell you what I was reminded of when I was listening to it. When I got to the end of the second episode, I thought, oh, this is going to be like School Reunion, where Toby Whithouse comes up with this brilliant idea mm. about the God paradox. Um, what's it yeah, called? Yeah. The, the God equation. Um, yeah. And then throws it away. And John Dorney introduces this thing in the second episode, which is the thing that he's sort of preempted in the first episode with the weird shit. And you think, oh, God, he's going to throw this idea away, isn't he? But no, that idea is central to how it all resolves mm. and to why the name, the two masters, is relevant and to why they're both there. Mm. And it just, uh, you know, it's not without its problems. Big finish. I find generally as a problem with over-enunciation so that a lot of the humour mm. kind of falls slightly flat mm. because a joke is never as funny if it's over-enunciated no, no. as if it is yeah, it its when it's thrown out beat, in conversation. Yeah. So, you know, some of the humour falls a bit flat and there's potentially an issue with... Um, because you know what I say about all the elements of stories must be relevant to the story itself not necessarily the plot mm. but the mm. story and I suppose there's an issue in the first episode he brings back some characters or a civilization from a previous story essentially for the sake of sacrificing themselves in order to get you into the plot mm. the sacrificing them and potentially there's an issue there with well why did you bother couldn't you have found some other way into the plot it's not really an issue it kind of leaves sets you off 
add a slight kilter of balance to where it's going. Mm. But f- by another token, that's probably the best way to do it because otherwise it would all just be this one plot. Mm. And it kind of needs to come in from an angle. Otherwise, you wouldn't have uh, any kind of um, objective sort of way of looking at it. Mm. You know, you'd be too tied up in the main plot to really understand its implications. Mm. So by having this other thing in the first episode, you kind of get a sense of the implications. And also, there's something else that happens in the first episode that if I say anything about, will spoil something and... That's kind of something that doesn't really go anywhere when it could have, but there's kind of a reason why it doesn't go anywhere, which kind of illuminates something else later on. And it's kind of a shame that it happens and it looks like it's a bit thrown away, but it's kind of not really thrown away, but kind of is. So, I mean, there are small issues with it. But generally speaking, in terms of Doctor Who Big Finish, probably the best one I've heard. I don't have a huge amount of experience of Doctor Who Big Finish, but you know, I've heard quite a few. um, I haven't seen this, so I can't possibly spoil it. But does it have any connections with the... the, Because there's the Seventh Doctor and the Master had met before in an audio play called Master. And that's Jeffrey Beaver's Master as well. Yeah. That's really good. That is really strong. Oh, really? I yeah. can't remember who wrote it. It might be Lance Parkin, or did he write? Because they did a trio. They did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did Davros, Master, and Omega. That's right. Yeah. And the Davros one and the Master one were the two that I'd listened to, and it was very dark and moody and atmospheric. It's. I don't think it's got anything to do with that. Okay. Other okay. than that. Well, obviously, the, the, these other two master stories I mean, in this trilogy are yeah. the entry point into the it story made me think of it for because, the characters. Because the Seventh Doctor was on his own in that at that point, and it was a very particular Seventh Doctor, a kind of a, a darker, tortured, so not the arch manipulator, but a sort of a, a lonely, almost, almost the Doctor who you see at the beginning of the television movie, mm. just not quite as settled, but this kind of this kind of slightly lonely figure. Yeah, this isn't quite that. Right, okay. This is more... I don't know, to say too much about it would be to give yeah. too much away. Yeah, don't. And I, think I, do, I do like what Big Finish do with with characters like the Master and also Davros. They bring in Terry Malloy and Jeffrey Beavers, who, I mean, Jeffrey Beavers was the Master very, very briefly. But he's such but a great he's actor. Really, he's yeah. really good, but he's also a really good vocal actor as well. Yeah, and yeah. Terry Malloy is as well. They're really good. They're really good radio actors. I can't remember what the new actor's called. Alex McQueen. Alex McQueen. Who's really good as well. Mm. But, yeah, he's in the thick of it and and in loop and, yeah, he does a lot of comedy on television. Mm. But in the sort of background of these comedies, he plays can, tends to play the sort of the straight, pompous characters. Mm. I'd be interested to hear how he sort of... He's he not... arch villainy. I thought he was going to be slightly camper than he is. Right. He's, okay. he's not... He's certainly not Flash Gordon-type camper. Okay, okay. I thought he might have been, because I... I don't know, some things that I'd read were leading me to expect that. And he does, particularly as it goes on, the further you get into it, he, so, he kind of gets camper as it goes through. Okay. okay. But he... <laughs> but he... Well, yeah. That's quite funny. Because he's the dad, isn't he? In um, in between us, oh, is he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. And, the, and the kids are always accusing him. Well, everybody who's working on this is obviously having an absolute ball. Yeah, 
But well, I, I get the impression everybody working at Big Finish is having a is having an absolute yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, you know, it must be a dream job. Oh, and I tell you what, it was directed by Jamie Anderson. Okay. Who's um, Jerry Anderson's son? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. He works for Big Finish now. He's yeah, he's doing all sorts of stuff with them. Wow. As well as looking after the legacy of his father as well. Mm. I remember seeing him on Thirty Years in the TARDIS. Yeah. That documentary, and they had they interviewed Jerry Anderson looking really slightly in a kind of mock way upset because his son was a Doctor Who fan and not a <laughs> not a Jerry Anderson fan. So yeah, and here's the proof of the pudding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been in the in the family since then. I wonder if he was partly responsible for bringing Terror Hawks to Big Finish. I, I this think was perhaps before him. I don't know. I think I saw. Ago, I think I, I heard a Big Finish podcast which had an interview with him talking about talking about his father and some of the things mm. he was bringing out of that. So it's possible. I'd yeah, be surprised maybe. if he wasn't. Anyway, the other thing mm. is the first volume of the second Doctor Adventures, which, do you know what the Companion Chronicles are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the Companion Chronicles, for people who don't, mm. is essentially what you have is narrated stories, narrated by the Companion, who is the central character in this story, and they tend to have one other actor. So there are certain bits where it goes from narration into sort of cast audio drama, but basically it's a narrated story where you've got one other actor doing bits of dialogue and bits of conversation. And that's one kind of storytelling you know, a read, an audio book, mm-hmm. essentially, with just a hint of cast audio drama. Yeah. Now, with these second Doctor ones, because you've still got all the companions other than Ben, the actors who played them are still alive, mm-hmm. who are around with the second Doctor, and because they've now cast, well, They've now cast somebody else as Ben, but because also Fraser Hines does this amazing Patrick Troughton impersonation. Right. So they've done what they're billing as Companion Chronicles. This is a four CD set. But what they really are is almost full cast audio dramas. So in other words, I think each one has got Fraser Hines plus the female companion mm. from the period in which the story set. Uh, you've got Annika Wills as Polly in the first, Deborah Watling as Victoria in the second, and um, Zoe, Wendy Padbury in the third. The fourth one is set during the Zoe period, but the fourth one's different. It's just Jamie, because the fourth one kind of rounds out the collection by telling a very definitely Jamie-centric story. But that's kind of the theme of the whole set, is the development of Jamie across okay. the three or four years that he spent with the second Doctor. This is the Fraser Hines master plan. But each one's also got two or three other actors in as well. So there are occasionally bits where it's narrated where the narrator, which will be Fraser Hines or Annika Wills or Deborah Watling, will say, and such and such said such and such. But then a lot of the times you've actually got whole scenes and sequences where you're having it as audio drama actually works really well it's like it's like a book so so are you saying that the companion chronicles were like dramatized audiobooks or audiobooks with dramatization this no, no, is no. this is more like dramatization with voiceover narration 
Yeah, essentially. Yeah. But it, but it's somewhere in between. It's more like a book because in a book you're narrating in your own voice and giving the characters other voices when you've got speech marks. Mm. And this is kind of a bit like that. Okay. It's kind of got whoever first person narration from the companion characters and then most of the other characters are cast. Mm. Not all of them, but most of them. So you've kind of so it comes to life in the way the book comes to life in your head. Mm-hmm. It's very Jamie centric, but the really interesting thing about it is because the Companion Chronicles are kind of supposed to evoke the period of the program that they were set in, mm. but this kind of goes in the other direction. Oddly, instead of doing the kind of stories that you could imagine being on the telly during the Second Doctor's um, three years. It actually goes much more towards the kind of stories that you could imagine being in the annuals. Wow. While Patrick Troughton was the Doctor. Not completely such that you can't imagine these stories being on telly at all, but, I mean, it is miles away from Base Under Siege or anything like that. It's, I guess... Well, okay, I'll tell you a little bit about each of the four stories. The first one's a ghost story set at a railway station. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I don't think you can actually really imagine the second Doctor and those characters being involved in. Sounds like and Steel. Yeah, exactly. It's much more small scale than anything those would. And the first one has a... I don't want to spoil anything about it, but kind of of a metatextual element. The kind of thing I'd write, Simon. Mm. Mm. It's got an element that's something like I'd write. Mm. So the and that is entirely unlike anything that you had during the entire Second Doctor uh, tenure, apart from possibly the Mind Robber and possibly the last episode of the War Games. Mm. So that sits completely apart. Then the second one is a bit like George Powell's The Time Machine via Colony in Space, but again with a metatextual element that comes in at the end that makes it more like an annual story. And and actually, the second one has got a really affecting ending that will have some people welling up, I think. Um, third one is a bit disappointing. I'm not sure what happened with the third one. It kind of relies more on narration than the others. Right. And the story in the third one is kind of the one that's most like what Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines were doing on the telly. And for some reason, it doesn't quite work. So the story itself is interesting, but the telling of it doesn't quite work. But then the fourth one, the Jamie-centric one, is a bit like the two masters in respect of wherever you think it's going, all of a sudden it goes somewhere else, but the other place it goes to is completely logical, so it comes out of the premise of the story. Mm. And it's it's a really strong story, the fourth one. So the set, overall, it's a very strong set. The stories themselves will be, um, I mean, unless you've listened to this and gone out and said, all right, and now I'm expecting annual type stories now. But the stories themselves will have come to as a bit of a surprise to most of the listeners who perhaps were expecting, you know, things like the Ice Warriors and stuff mm, like that. Mm. Well, I, I read, um, I read the, you know, they, they went through a phase of getting quite high end sci fi authors mm. to write, to write original novels. I read the second Doctor one. I'm desperately trying to... I think it was called The Wheel of Ice. And it was by... Stephen Baxter. Stephen Baxter. Baxter. Stephen Baxter. And that felt very much like... 
at its heart, it had a series of second doctory concepts, but around the edges, it has kind of exploded it. So you end up with a character basically surfing across the ice, the mm. ice glacier of this planet. In fact, in fact, Jamie surfing across yeah. the ice glacier. Something and you it couldn't... kind of really, yeah, something you couldn't have done no. with the television series and something that maybe would have worked in an annual, that kind of, that kind of, so it seemed to extend it in that sort of fantasy direction. Well, of these four, only the last two even have situations that you can have imagined turning mm-hmm. up on the telly. Yeah. And even then, they do things with the characters and with the concepts that would never in a million years have turned up in season four or season five. Yeah. Possibly had a push in season six where things all went a bit mad. Mm-hmm. But it's very good set. Is Fraser Hines is excellent. He has this... Because each one is set at different points during Jamie's history with the Doctor, mm. and he manages to get all that across in the narration, mm. in the way he narrates it. He narrates it as if he's narrating it live as it's happening almost, yeah. rather than telling a story. So the language that he uses kind of changes across the um, episodes according to where he is in his sort of education in the TARDIS. Okay. Okay. Um, the three girls... All sound older. There's no two ways about it. Mm. Fraser Hines almost doesn't sound any older, but the three girls do. You can't get away from that. So you've just kind of got to take that on the head. Is Deborah Watling all right? Actually, of the three, Deborah Watling is the one who most sounds older than she did before. Yes. But she's narrating it from a point in the future at which she is older. Mm. Right. So she's the one who gets away with it the best. Okay. I've, I think I've, I've always been a little bit scarred by Dimensions in Time with Deborah Watling, and it may just be the, the, oh, no, the dialogue I'd, she's given. But I think, I think in terms of the three actresses, she's the one who does best out of it. Oh, right, okay. Not just in terms of the acting, but also in terms of the story. Right, I think she okay. gets the strongest story of the three as okay, well. Okay, good for her. Um, Debbie Watling, uh, Debbie Watling. Um, Wendy Padbury. Wendy Padbury is the one who sounds least like she did. Oddly, okay. All right. I think maybe that's perhaps because Deborah Watling and um, Annika Wills have both got really distinctive voices. Yes. Mm. Whereas I don't think Wendy Padbury's voice itself is distinctive as her personality was. So because you're you've got the voice without the phases, mm. I think she's the one who least comes across as she was like she was on the telly. Right. But they'll they'll do pretty good, really. The guy who plays Ben is excellent. Okay. Fraser Hines, Patrick Troughton, there are bits where he's sidelined a bit because this does concentrate on Jamie. Not to the expense of the Doctor, but but by concentrating on Jamie, they give it a kind of a heart. Mm. And they also give it a kind of a reason for being as well, since you don't have Patrick Troughton. But there are moments where Fraser Hines will come in and do a line of second Doctor after he's been out of the story for five minutes. And it's not till he goes back into Fraser Hines as the narration when you suddenly think to yourself, oh, that wasn't Patrick Trown. You forget <laughs> mm, it's wow. Fraser Hines at some points. I did anyway. Not often, because yes. you're kind of aware that it's Fraser Hines doing it. Yeah. But you get involved you enough in the story that you suddenly get surprised by it once or twice. Wow. He does a really good job of it. And it's ever so slightly caricatured. Mm. But as the set goes on, he takes some of the caricature out so that it becomes more and more like the actor. It's a really good job. I think it's a really excellent set. Third story, like I say, is 
the disappointing one of the four, but that's probably only because the other three are actually really strong stories. Mm -hmm. And that one is just a bit more average, really, I guess. Yeah, that's definitely a hearty recommendation, too. I definitely feel the big finish output. Um, everyone I'm hearing now is becoming essential. It's, it's kind of it's really, gear, it's really it? annoying me. Yeah, because I, know I, can't, I can't afford them. No, mm. so no, and I'm such a completist at heart yeah. as well. Oh, I had to give up on being a completist with mm. when Big Finish started producing it with at the same time as the books. Mm. I just couldn't. You just can't. Keep it's up. a bit like comics. You've got to select yeah. your titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They seem to have hit a certain point where they've gone into the idea of themed box sets more. Mm. And the themed box set now <coughs> is pretty much the default <coughs> mm. for most of their series. They still have the monthly release. Mm. And they've got the Tom Baker ones, which are coming out as individual stories. But apart from that, they're pretty much all themed box sets. Which it makes sense, because then you can mm. get people like John Hurt... Mm. And then if they enjoy it, you can get him back for a second sequel box set, but you don't have this sort of season, this feeling of season. And I think fans tend to be comfortable, more comfortable with seasons. I just birth. wish they'd set up something like a bit for the older titles, almost like a Spotify type setup, you know, where yes. you could pay so much a month to be able to just listen yeah. as and yeah. well, yeah. rather than owning the titles. That's true. That would be quite nice. Maybe you should email them and suggest it. Yeah. But then I suppose they still sell well enough on download that they're probably going to... Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yes. Because, of course, they are still a relatively small company mm. and their overheads must be huge. You know, the writers and directors, studio time and the actors, none of these things come cheap. No. Such yeah. an amazing legacy, though, to have mm. produced... Produce probably, I mean, I don't know how many hours now there are of, of stories, but it must be rivaling. It's more than the classic series. Well, they must have their own there, try not to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the classic series ran to 100 and, well, it depends how you count, somewhere between 165 and 170 stories, depending yeah. on how you count things like Trial of a Time, Lord and Sharda. Yeah. So that's around 500 episodes. Uh, Big Finish's monthly range has now got to oh I counted this and I can't remember what the result was it's either a hundred plus about a hundred other things which takes right. it to two hundred or else it's two hundred plus about a hundred right. other things which yeah. would take it to three yeah. anyway big finish have passed the classic series wow. quite comfortably I think and it can go on because they've they've got license up to who have they got license up to Capaldi now so they haven't got Capaldi they've got license they could have Matt Smith if they wanted him yeah, right? I th I think not the, if they wanted him. If Matt Smith <clears throat> agreed to do it, mm. I think the license now is that they can have anything other than the incumbent Doctor. I'm right, not sure. Okay. Something wow. like that. Yeah. yeah, which may mean that the license covers Capaldi when he leaves. Yeah, I think I got the impression. I mean, I may I have misread it. But I got the give impression. A gap, don't you? From, yeah, yeah, yeah. From a marketing yeah. point of view, it'd be better off to leave a gap and then mm. yes, yeah, have him come back as the big. Yes. Guess what? Mm. But Matt Smith would do well oh, in the big finish. He'd be amazing. He'd have such fun with it as well, yeah. wouldn't he? Yeah. And it's for an actor, it's such a small part of your week. I mean, it depends how much work you do into it, you put into it. They may mm. send you the script and you might revise and rehearse the script. But I mean, basically, each one of these plays is recorded 
over a weekend, depending on the length of the play, might be done in a single day. Some of them, and it, and it makes it makes economic sense because if you're in one of these big finish, even if you weren't involved in Doctor, if you're in one of these big finish, you get to go to the conventions. Yeah, this is the this is well, and also you get asked back to do plenty yeah. more as well. Yeah, yeah. Generally, once your foot's under the door with Big Finish, mm. you're part of the family. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but you're right. They've definitely, in the last two or three years particularly, but starting before that with things like Dark Eyes, they definitely... Yeah, Dark Eyes was stunning. Well, they've definitely looked I at the... Uh, they kind of... I don't know. It's been Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who started branching out and not being just a run of 13 episodes every spring so that it started being something different mm. I think Big Finish I don't know whether it was deliberate or not but it, it feels to me like they looked at that and they said right, you don't have to just do what you're doing, you can experiment and you can find ways to use that experiment in the same way as Stephen Moffat did with Series 6, regardless of what you think of the quality of Series 6 what Russell T Davis had been doing was starting with an episode that introduces the companion and ending with something big yeah and generally in between you were kind of on a level but with series six what you had was start big big one in the middle to go into the break big one in the middle to come out of the break big one at the end it was almost like he was saying doctor who doesn't have to be ordinary mm -hmm. and of course doctor who doesn't have to be ordinary but what he was saying is doctor who doesn't have to be ordinary Doctor Who. He's almost saying you can make all Doctor Who extraordinary. And it's kind of like Big Finish have looked at what they're doing and said, we can do that too. We can make everything extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And so they're not just coming up with sets, which kind of lead you down the path of, well, that's not ordinary to start with, but they're coming up with concepts for those sets that go with that and so you've got, you know, each one seems like a big release. And that's why, because they're making each one a big release, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And of course you would, because you want people to buy your stuff. Anyway, five past 11. Uh, by my reckoning, if we make a cup of tea and watch Vincent and the Doctor, we should be <laughs> Very strong coffee, actually. Yeah. We'll talk about Vincent and the Doctor next time. Yes. Anybody got anything else they want to bring up or add? Or did you mention Seasons of War? Uh, seasons of War. Yes. Yeah, available. Go to www.chinbeard. Pre-order in about fifty-five minutes. Yeah, it will be, wouldn't it? Is it? No, no, no. It's midday tomorrow. Oh, is it midday tomorrow? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, no. Well, midday anyone listening days to the ago. podcast will be. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Midday yesterday. Midday on Saturday. Friday. The Friday. Thirtieth. Friday the 1st, 1st of July. Oh, yeah, the 1st, of course it is, yeah. Mm, that's the whole point. Yeah. Simon, you got so it. Simon, no, I'm getting my deadlines mixed up with that and Big Finish, that's why. Mm. <laughs> this is going back in time now, so I think we'll call it a night. But, but yes, look up Chinbeard Books. Mm. Yeah, well, it's Who easy enough to Google Seasons of War, isn't it? Yeah. Or find somebody you know is involved with it and find it through that. Right, until we talk about Vincent and the Doctor then, which I... Quite sure we will at some point. Yeah, yeah. I won't. Oh, because you'll not be here on Saturday. I won't be yeah. here. No, I will watch it anyway, though, and give my thoughts on the next episode if anyone's interested, which they're probably not. So I'll shut up. Well, I won't be, so I shan't ask. Okay. But until then, I was Matt. I was Simon, and I was Jr. And we'll speak again soon. 
Well, <laughs> are you recording something? Well, we're driving home from Simon's house and I'm dropping Matt home. And it's just struck me that in that 60 minutes we devoted to Brexit, there was one <laughs> thing that I really wanted to say that we never brought up. Okay. So, if this recording comes out, this will be a little five minute extra at the end of the podcast, and if it doesn't, it won't. And I'm hoping that this isn't going to distract JR from driving. <laughs> to, to the, I hope we, I do get home the end of this. Well, we do chat when we're driving. Yeah, so, no, no, so that's true. That's true. I was only going to point out that the thing that really carried the day, I think, for the Leave campaign, and the thing that's been most telling in the aftermath, is the intolerance that was stoked up by the papers. Yeah. We did allude to this while we were talking about it, but, and this is the point, whether Leave had won or whether Remain had won, and whether the papers did it implicitly or directly, what they really did was, and, and this is not true of everybody who voted Leave by any stretch of the imagination, but we've seen it in the aftermath. What the papers did was really give a mandate to people who have innate bigotry. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worrying because the, pa- the papers, the tabloids, tabloid papers mainly are populist so they reflect what's happening the mood of the country but they also generate the mood of the country so yeah, it can become say, a circular yeah. thing but it's the reflection of the mood of the country that's what I find worrying I don't I don't care that much about the tabloids I care more about the fact that the country has swung into a darker place even in just the last four days yeah. It's and it it wasn't quite there. I and mean, it may have been there before, but it's been sort of brought open. It's like a wound's opened up. Well, it, yeah. And I've discovered that it's infected. In a way before it was quite innate. Yeah. I mean, not entirely because with the levels of immigration we've had, I suppose, it's been bubbling to the surface for a while. Yeah. But this pay not just the papers, but I mean the whole thing, the campaign itself, has just allowed people, some people, obviously not all people, but we are seeing it now, has allowed some people to think it's acceptable. And I think this is, so there's been a lot of a lot of comment from both sides about reconciliation and about how we've made the decision and now we have to work with it and how we have to stop campaigning. But I think there are things that have been exposed in this that you don't ever stop campaigning against. And so the campaign for me has just become stronger rather than it hasn't hasn't died down. Now the vote's been made. It's actually become a lot more intense for me. And the thing is, leaving the EU is not going to solve that because partly A, because there will still be immigration. Yeah. When we leave the EU. Leaving the EU was just the referendum. Mm. What's happened is the referendum has, has demonstrated something about the country. And that's and that's a much bigger issue. And it's a lot harder to fix as well. And, you know, anybody who is an immigrant in this country now is not going home. 
if we leave the EU. No. Or most of them will. I suppose some of them probably will just to get the hell out of it. <laughs> but, you know, that problem's not going to go away. So, whatever the people who voted to leave thought they were voting for is not what they were voting for. But that license that they've been given to feel that this is acceptable, that's not going to diminish either. It's it's potentially only going to get worse. Yeah. So, uh, so much for isolating ourselves. What we've essentially done is turn the gas on so that the cauldron is now, you know, fully on the boil to such a degree that you, I'm not sure you can turn the gas back off. This is a situation we've allowed, or David Cameron, by sticking it in the manifesto, has allowed to happen. It's a genie that's going to be very difficult to put back in the box. Well, it's also about... And this was what I was saying earlier in the podcast. It's about trying to find out where this... I mean, there's always been racism in the country. There's always been this sort of undercurrent of intolerance. But it, it in, it's increased since... Effectively since 9-11, I think. Yeah. And, and since America went further to the right with George Bush and the American Patriot Act. And... The, uh, the increasing unrest in the Middle East and all of these things have sort of sort of generated this so there's and as soon as you can identify a route or in this case uh, a whole spectrum of routes or something you can start dealing with it slightly you'll never get rid of it but you can start kind of mitigating it and it's also to do with education as well or, there's a, there's, it's about that but also the perception of there's a, in America there's a strong anti-intellectualism that happens amongst the right wing and for a long time I think it, was, it wasn't true over here I think there was a genuine, a genuine when we talked about sort of people's aspirations it included going to university for instance and people talked about being the first person in their family to go to university. And I don't know whether that's the case anymore because the universities and the academics are seen as one of these elites that were, were being experts before in the campaign. Yeah, yeah. And they're on the other side of the debate. So I don't know where that is. And that's up to the universities to try and, to try and deal with that without being you know, patronising and without ramming it down people's throats. They have to be quite subtle about it uh, and, and quite discreet about it, I think. And that's a real problem because, you know, I find it difficult to be discreet and subtle about that. And I know in, in a lot of the conversations I've been having with other people, I've probably sounded patronising. I've probably come across as being, you know, pompous. Well, you always do but on the podcast. Well, yeah, yeah. But, but that's, you know... But in, the, in this instance, I've, I thought, you know, to hell with it. I'm going to have to say, you know... Well, this thing needs saying. Thing without softening it. And this is the thing about the, just get over it, it's done. Yeah. No, these things still need saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're never going to not They need be saying, saying more than they needed before. Absolutely. Because, you know, it has, it has exposed a lot of nasty stuff out there. Well, that's a lovely note to leave the podcast on. <laughs> But, I, you know, one thing that somebody has said that I think is 
probably a good rule to spend the next few weeks and months and maybe years by is you know, if you report incidents of casual racism in the street, the police are not going to be able to prosecute them, by and large. But what will happen is that a greater awareness of the issue will find its way into not just the police consciousness, but the whole consciousness. Yes. And so people will be more focused on dealing with it. So this person said, you know, if you see incidents of casual racism or bigotry or whatever in the street, do report it just so that it stays as an issue yeah. rather than allow, being allowed to become normality. Yes. Yeah. 